BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. And, and my impression is you just kind of start. Yeah, that's literally how it... I mean, essentially what happens is at some point I say to Simon, have we started? And then he goes, yeah. And then we go, OK. So, and, and, so here and, we are. And, and every time it sounds like it's a put-up, but it isn't. It's because every time it's a voyage of discovery. <laughs> Hello, Jeff. Hello. I mean, there was no prior conversation between us about how this would start. And uh, well, actually, I, no prior conversation between us other than "Hello, have we met before?" Outside, because we. Ha- so I, I feel we should we should do introductions. Hello, Jeff. I'm Mark. Hello, Mark. It's nice nice to meet you. And you did that thing where you said "Good to see you," which I know because I'm very bad with faces to the extent that I've been diagnosed as on the prosopagnosia scale. Well, this is uh, facial blindness. Yeah. Okay. I think I have a version of that. I can, I honestly, I can meet people like a hundred times and then I can meet them and I just literally, and I've got no idea. And it's like, I'm doing a faulty police data bank thing. So, so probably when I said to you, whatever I said, it will have been a deliberately ambivalent phrase that won't have given away whether I... And then when you said, we haven't met before, have we? I thought, that's great, because that's I, I don't, I'm not recognising you because we haven't met, not because I can't bring your face up in my... I, f- I feel so seen in this moment of my life, because I have a lot of social anxiety about even going out because I'm so worried that people will think I'm rude yeah, no, because, I've never, because I don't recognise them, and it's just because I can't retain faces. So we have a uh, my... Partly the good lady, Professor Her indoors, and I have a whole system which goes like this: that because she sees me do this all the time, and she's really good with faces. So if we are somewhere and somebody starts, so and I go, oh hi, 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 and I'm talking as if I know them. If I don't immediately introduce them, Linda knows that that means Mark has no idea who this is. So Linda then goes, I'm sorry, he's terribly rude. I'm Linda, and then they go. Oh, I'm Jeff. And I go, oh, so I'm so sorry. I thought you knew each other. Yeah, Jeff, yeah. this is, have you not met yeah, before? Yeah, and then have, I, make a, I do a pantomime. Exactly the yeah. same system, only my wife doesn't throw me under the bus by saying uh, he's so rude. Oh, no, but, but, it's a, but that's a way of saving it because by doing it, it's like, you know, if you, it, it's like a, it's right. not, yeah, it's, a, it's like I'd rather say he's rude mm. than he has no idea who you are. Of and, course. And the other, the other thing which complicates it slightly, which is that if you're an E list celebrity, like me, like, you know, so people might have seen you on the television. Right. Okay? But they they don't know, you know, quite often people will start talking to me and they have no idea who I am, but they're vaguely aware that they've seen me before. And I'm just thinking they're talking to me because I know them and I can't remember their face. We can have a conversation for about 20 minutes having never met with nothing in common <laughs> before one of us... you know, clocks that this is actually the first time we've met. And how transparent are you in trying to ask leading questions to figure out where you know them from? Well, I... uh, if I'm on my own, I go, oh, uh, how, but how long? How, I haven't seen you since Friday. Yes, since Friday <laughs> in, in where? And what, are you, and, you know, what are you up to? How's that going? And then I, you know, and also it's a thing about seeing people out of context. If you know somebody from one place and then you, I'll give you an example. Although this is a strange example. Uh, you remember Sham 69? Yes. I met Jimmy Percy on a beach. Right in 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 Hampshire, you know, beach in Hampshire, not in. And I was looking at this really, you know, kind of sinewy-looking guy in very tight speedos, thinking, 
that really looks like somebody I know. And he was looking at some fat old grey-haired bloke thinking that really looks like someone. And then we had a conversation going, hi, hi, how how are you? Yes, I'm fine. Before I went, you're Jimmy Percy. And he went, you're Mark Kermode. And that was it, fine. But we talked for about five minutes before we realised that we didn't know each other. But you've got that advantage of him being able to say, oh, you're Mark Kermode. Well, yes, but most of the time I get, you're Mark Lamar. The thing I get more than anything is somebody came up to me and they said, you're that Mark Lamar. And I said, no. They went, you are. I went, I'm not. They went, yes, you are. I went, all right, I am. So I, I get the sort of mild rockabilly aesthetic. but The weirder one is you're Mark Cousins. And again, I get that quite a lot. They, right. people, go, people go, I loved you on Movie Drome. And I never had anything to do with Movie Drome. It was Alex Cox, who looks nothing like me, and Mark Cousins, who looks and sounds nothing like me. And, but people go, oh, yeah, no, I loved you on Movie Drome. And for a long time... Mark and I had a system, which was if anybody came up to one of us and said, oh, I loved you in the Exorcist documentary, if it was a compliment, we just accepted it. And if it was a criticism, we'd say it was the other one. <laughs> and, that, and it kind of worked quite well. Well, you need to get yourself to the University College of London who were doing an ongoing study in prospect. So are you actually part of so, so I'm not, Yeah, so I went in the study and, and basically what they said to me is it's a spectrum and there's something going on with you. But there are people at the either end of the spectrum, you know, there are people who, you know, could say... I know you. I saw you on the uh, I saw you on the uh, eighteen twenty five from Manchester right, right, right. to London in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, and then at the other end spectrum, you can work next to somebody every day of your life, see them out of context, and not be able to recognise them. Have you read Nora Ephron's book, which is called um, I think it's called I Remember Nothing, and it's a you know it's a series of, sort of reminiscences, and she writes this absolutely brilliant story about she's on, she's on the way to Las Vegas. I think it's Vegas. And she has no idea why she's going to Las Vegas. She knows that she's going to Las Vegas and she can't remember why. And she knows that when she gets there, she's going to be met by somebody and it will all fall into place what it is that she's doing there. Because she's on the plane and she's a bit drowsy. And she arrives at Las Vegas with no idea why she's there. And she gets off the plane and she looks around the crowd to see anybody. And then she sees a face who looks familiar and she thinks, OK, great, but she can't place the face. And the, this woman walks towards her and she's going... And it's her sister. <laughs> I thought that's well, that's fine. So if Nora Ephron can do it, then that's fine, you know. I read a great Nora Ephron thing last night, which oh, I had brilliant. no idea about, or a fact that I had no idea about, but of course to you this will come as no surprise, the good, uh, the Goodfellas Nora Ephron connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Through Nick Pelleggi, yeah, yeah. 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 Or Pelagia, have you pronounced Which, which it, yeah. for people, I mean, I'm guessing if people are listening to this, they, they may, may well know already. Yeah, and I mean, because, well, because Nora Ephron had, a, you know, an extraordinary writing career beforehand and, you know, you know, and the connection with Watergate and, you know, I mean, she was, yes, I mean, she's a, it's a genuine polymath. And Nora Ephron said the most brilliant thing um, that I think anyone has... I've interviewed a lot of film directors and I was interviewing Nora Ephron. This is some time ago because obviously Nora Ephron's no longer with us. Um, this was for, I think, maybe back in the 90s. And I was talking about the fact that um, Nora Ephron's films, uh, you know, people always seem to, they talk fondly about being in them. They talk fondly about the experience of making them. And, um, and she said, yeah, you know, the biggest myth in filmmaking is that in order to make something that's exciting, you have to have chaos on set and you have to have, you know, rage and you have to have long debt and all this stuff. And she said, it's a complete male conspiracy. She said, the whole thing is a male conspiracy designed to prevent mothers and people who have, you know, responsibilities in their life outside of being in this film to, cause she said, I run my sets like this. Uh, we start at nine o'clock. We stop at five o'clock, we have a lunch break and a crash. And she said, I have never run over budget and none of my films have lost money. It's so civilised. And they're brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You know? And how do you think that, that culture is changing? 
I think it is changing, but I mean, you know, you look at organisations like Raising Films and things, I think it is starting to change. People are starting to realise that actually the film industry should be, you know, more open to allowing, you know, people other than big shouty men to, to, to run it. But I think it's very, very slow. But she was, she was saying that back in the 90s. And um, and she said, well, the, you know, look at look at look at the end result. Yeah, the films all get you know. And she said, I could have done them, but you know, by running really long days. But why? And she she was very clear. She said it's a deliberate conspiracy to oust a certain group of people from being you know from being able to be involved. Brilliant woman. Do you, want to, do you want a couple of emails of things that were disguised in your absence? If you feel it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> we, we, no, go on, no, go on. can skim it. Yeah, no, uh, no, they, they were talking about unfilmable books. Oh, right, OK. Uh, this one comes from Matthew in Aberdeen, who says, following on from last week's discussion of filmable, unfilmable, unfilmable books, uh, I would like to propose Jasper Ford's Shades of Grey. It's set in a world where social hierarchy is determined by which part of the spectrum people see. Uh, the different characters' perception of colour is integral to the book. The only way I can think of doing it is like people peep show where the entire thing is filmed from different characters point of view okay i haven't read the book so um so i don't know all i what i would say is there are two films that spring to mind on that one of them is did you ever see notes on blindness i didn't it was i mean it was that's an unfilmable book right that is a a book about the experience of losing sight and then uh, reconnecting with the world in a new medium and using cinema to do it, which is, you know, a, a, a medium which is absolutely built on light. And it's just genius. It's absolute genius. And the other one is that documentary by Gary Tarn called Black Sun about a painter who lost their sight and carried on being a, an artist. And again, it's, 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 they are absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, evocations of of blindness on film and done in a way which is just breathtaking. I mean, Notes on Blindness is one of the best films I've ever seen. And just to you know, drag it into negativity, can you think of any films which uh, were filmed but should have been left as unfilmable books? Oh, plenty. I mean, absolutely plenty. I mean, Bonfire of the Vanities, you know. But I mean, actually, that's probably not because it's an unfilmable book. That's probably just that it's a terrible film. There's a, there's a very famous... It's not a book, but there's a very famous story that Bill Forsyth tells about making... Um, have you ever seen Being Human? No. No, well, no one has. Okay, so Being Human is the Bill Forsyth film that no one remembers. And it was a story, that basically the essence of it was that it's a love story but told over a series of different time periods. And the central essence of it is that no matter which period of, of life or existence you're living in, people are fundamentally the same. People's reactions are fundamentally the same. And it was, it's Robin Williams and um, I think it's Robin Penwright and um, and it took ages and then there was edit problems and there was reshoots and it finally got finished and it came and went. And I remember interviewing Bill Forsyth once, I have told this story before, but and, um, and I said, what do you think was wrong with that film? And, he, and Bill thought about it and he said, I think I should have just written a poem. And they thought, that's it. That's exactly it. It's a lovely poem. It's, a, it's not a lovely film. I mean, it's a lovely idea. But oh, and then, of course, there's, um, you know, there's the, the fountain, which is, um, which is kind of that same, Aaron Ofsky doing that same idea. There must be books that, should, that nobody should ever have gone near with a... I think no one's done a good job of a Kurt Vonnegut. Mother Knight was kind of... Oh, okay, that, okay. That's a, that is a brilliant yeah. choice. Wow. Okay, yeah, Mother Knight is really good. And it, you're right, it is the one... And, you know, remember there's that one bit in it isn't there when you see Vonnegut in the street yeah in slow motion I see I love so you're a Kurt Vonnegut fan yeah yeah okay so the Slaughterhouse Five film is all over the shop I mean which is a real shame and there's a film of Breakfast of Champions with Bruce Willis 
Yeah, that, okay. <laughs> and that was that was the noise that everyone made when Breakfast of Champions was being made with Bruce Willis. Yeah, but Mother Night is actually good. Yeah. And is there a film of Cat's Cradle? I haven't seen it, if there is. But, I mean, we can leave this as open as a topic for you and Simon when he returns. Uh, he, uh, he won't have read Vonnegut. All right, mayo at bbc.co.uk. On with the show. This is Jeff Lloyd and Mark Kermode on Kermode and Mayo's Film Review. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, do you and Simon not... I mean, how does it work with the crews? Did you disembark early? No, um, uh, he he got a little bit seasick. So right. he's, he's just basically having a, having a week just lying down. Right, know. staring at the horizon. Yeah, exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah, and that, I said to him, I said, that's the thing. You stand on the deck and you look at the horizon. But mm. he never listens to anything I say. He just mm. lay down in his cabin. You know, was waited upon by people, you know, handing him grapes. Not good. I, no. I was once on a I was once on a cross channel ferry from uh, cross North Sea ferry from Oslo to Newcastle on the day after New Year's Day, and it's 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 not pretty. Have you ever done the boat from uh, from Cornwall to Scilly, the the Salonian, which is a f- haven't? Okay, so that's a flat bottom boat because obviously the waters as you get into Scilly are really really you know shallow. So it's a flat bottom boat, which is known popularly as the Vomit Comet because. <laughs> My word, you have to have sea legs of steel on that thing. It used to be something you could get, but it's not under the counter. You could only you used to be able to get it over the counter. You can't anymore. Good, we've covered uh, covered seasickness. Um, we should, and we've we should... also covered the fact that you've just told me something which really impressed me, which was that you opened the arch over the the road nearby where I used to live in Manchester. And you, we actually opened the arch. I, d- I did. It was some kind of regeneration pro, uh, programme by Manchester City Centre, I think, like a, a city council, I think in the aftermath of the IRA bomb in right, 1996. Right, right. And I, I had to preside over the official opening ceremony of this arch. And then I put on a, a stand-up comedy evening in a marquee in Hume in, in Manchester. In, the in Hume, fantastic. Yeah. And then, but word got round. It was sponsored by some beer and word got round that there was free drink and it got quite uh, it got quite lively to say the least there were, there were people not only heckling the stand-up comedy but there were people dancing to the stand-up comedy <laughs> every time I went on stage some people just started yelling out specky specky because I'm a bespectacled man and then at some point I just stopped going on stage and then people were just shouting where's specky the whole time which I mean that was kind of good for my self-esteem yeah, well, even I'm, if it wasn't intended in that way I was in Hume all the way through the 80s and I, I never 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 called it because then I wasn't wearing glasses at that point, that's really. I've just realised the reason that nobody shouted that at me. At that point, I could see. I bet. Even <laughs> if, you, if you were to go back to Hume now, I'm sure somebody would shout specky at you. <laughs> it's, you know, gentrified as it is these days. It's so spectacular. <laughs> uh, we should talk about what we're, we're going to be talking about, including reviews. Yeah, so we're going to be doing reviews of uh, Pain and Glory, the Pedro Almodovar, Hail Satan, Scary Stories Telling the Dark, Crawl, and Angel Has Fallen, which is a new Gerard Butler film, which I'm particularly excited about talking to you about. You, you love a bit of Butler. I do. And, uh, yeah, and, and he's having a, he's having a Butler innocence. A but, what would the Gerard Butler version of McConaughey be? A Gerardessence. Nice. Thank you very much. Nice. After the after the film that should have been called Keepers, but actually ended up being called The Vanishing, but it should have been called Keepers, in which he was absolutely brilliant. Anyway, so there's a new. It's the it's the third of the Has Fallen series. I love you, Butler. Uh, it's the opposite of what Blakey was saying on the buses. <laughs> um, and and also, I know people will be keen to hear this because uh, because you've been off on on the cruise. Um, they, you, they, I mean, people are eagerly awaiting your opinion on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which you've seen as well. I have seen as well. And, okay. and, and here's the thing. I mean, this isn't probably a great thing to admit at the, the start of a show like this, but I, I am such a, a feeble-minded person that 
if if I have an opinion that differs with uh, with somebody else's, I then start to doubt my own opinion. Um, so I was quite okay. relieved when I saw your tweet praising your your yes. feelings on the film the yeah. other day. I feel that we're of a similar mind on it. Excellent. So there's there's going to be nothing in the way of conflict. Okay. Well, let's do that in greater depth when we get to it in the top ten, which I imagine it's fairly high up. Yes. Uh, and then um, we, we have some special guests as well. They are Sam Taylor Johnson and uh, and and Aaron Taylor Johnson, who are respected the director and writer and star and co-writer of the uh, the new film A Million Little Pieces, which is the adaptation of the James Fry memoir, which uh, was a sensation, I think. So it feels like around 2003, 2004, something like that. Uh, in, in my cultural ignorance, I'm not familiar with it. I'm seeing the film next week, which I haven't seen the film yet either, so... It was one of these... It was an addiction memoir. OK. Uh, and it was presented as, as such as a memoir, and people went nuts for it. It was one of these ones you would see people... Everybody on public transport seemed to be wearing, uh, reading this book uh, at some stage. And then it turned out that parts of it were fictionalised. Okay. And there was this huge scandal. And he was dragged onto the Oprah Winfrey show to uh, to, to be contrite and apologise. And it does seem strange because, you know, any, any memoir is to some extent f- fictionalised. Yeah. Because who trusts their own memory? No, absolutely. And who doesn't embellish a story to make it slightly better? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and anyway, we'll be able to talk a little bit to Sam Taylor Johnson about how much that did or didn't factor into the making of the film version of A Million Little Pieces. Excellent. Uh, we should get into the top ten, though. And when I say yes. that, we should start at number 11. Now, the, the reason for doing this, I know this has cropped up before, is that Casino Royale yes. is in the top ten, but okay. it's it's a secret cinema thing. Yes, so it, it, it is Casino Royale, which we've all seen. I haven't been to the secret cinema performance of it, but it is clearly doing very, very well, taking a huge amount of money, and I think a couple of people have emailed in to say that they'd seen it and it was great. I mean, I like Casino Royale very much. It's the Daniel Craig Casino Royale, obviously not the old Casino Royale. Yeah, and uh, do you know if they've they've built a casino? I mean, what's... I have no idea. I've literally been on a cruise. Well, it's secret cinema, so you don't want to... It's a secret, that's exactly... Uh, So let's start at number 11 then with Ugly Dolls. Uh, I have an email here, a couple of emails in fact. Uh, This one comes from Andy Scott, who says, the two girls chose to watch this today, ages four and seven instantly forgettable songs which seem to get abandoned halfway through the film familiar message but it's been done so much better before stale characters uh, we, we laughed just once during the film he also asks and I do think this is an interesting point uh, does snoring count as code breaking as someone was he says I wish it was me I was once in a preview screening of a it's meant to be a, a suspense horror movie and it was very bad and I suddenly got elbowed very firmly in the arm by Alan Jones, who's one of the organisers of Fright Fest, which he's on at the moment. And he went, you're snoring. And I had I had fallen asleep and I had started to snore in one of the tenser sequences. So, yes, I think it is a code violation. You have to not snore. How, how, how can... There's a thing that you can put on your nose, isn't there? There's a there's a thing, you know, a sticky thing that opens your nostrils up and stops you snoring. This might change my marriage forever. Yeah, it's, you, you must know about that. It's a, it's a th- you see them in. I've tried some bits and things, but they, they don't really. I mean, if anybody's listening to this and, and you have found something that works to prevent snoring, I've, I've tried all. The manners. best way of not snoring is to stay awake. <laughs> <laughs> that that works really well. How, where do you stand on a coughing fit? Is that code breaking? Uh, if you're no, I mean obviously if you cough, that's fine. But if you're if you're going to have an extensive coughing fit, then I have seen people very politely take themselves out of the cinema, which I've just thought, bravo. That's you know. Good. That's that's incredibly uh, thoughtful of you. Uh, this comes from Ricardo on Facebook, who says, 
Ugly Dolls is a movie that tries to send a positive message about accepting yourself, but not only is the script atrocious, but the message itself feels sanitised and even corrupt. The movie is just a pathetic infomercial to sell toys. Easily one of the worst ten movies I've seen all year. Also, the music is bad. I mean, to some extent, aren't children's films infomercials to sell toys? You know, even the really good ones. No, Inside Out isn't. True. I was thinking specifically of Toy Story, which we'll come on to in the top. Although that, of yeah. course, the toys came after the fact. You know, I mean, the, the, and in fact, and that's why there's the joke about about the toy about you know uh, uh, store owners not stocking in depth in Toy Story Two, isn't there? When when tour guide Barbie is taking them around, right. and she shows them the Buzz Lightyear dolls, which some short-sighted store owners did not stock in enough depth. So you know, there are there are there is merchandise, but then you know you said about Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, I remember having a conversation with George Lucas in which he explained that you know Star Wars. He, he he talked about the way that the Star Wars figurines figurines they're not they're not toys they're figurines um, the Star Wars figurines were actually almost more important than the films because that was giving the characters to people who could then go away and invent their own stories which I thought was a really brilliantly inventive way of explaining that actually the franchising was more important. I have to be honest, my, my stories that I invented with Star Wars figurines, figurines. Were, were, were never never as good never as good as the films. I mean maybe maybe a couple of the prequels I'm not sure, but. I to think about Toy Story 4, like that character Forky. Yes. Are you familiar? Yes. You can, I, I was in a, a Disney shop over the last couple of weeks and, and you can buy a Forky and that seems strange to me that yeah. you can buy something that's made out of plastic Spork. Fork. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just buy a Spork. Yeah. Um, all right, let's let's uh, let's move along uh, to, so number 10, we've had Casino Royale. Then at number 9, Spider-Man Far From Home. Which I thought it was fine and fun, although the whole kind of future of the Spider-Man thing is now up in the air, but I thought it was, I thought it was fun. Number eight, Angry Birds 2. Haven't seen it. So Angry Birds 1, which I enjoyed more than I thought. Yeah, it, it, whenever something like this comes along, like the, I remember the Lego film coming along and people being so dismissive and saying, oh, yeah, they're going to make a film about Lego. And it was and it brilliant. Ended up being, being absolutely great, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely yeah. brilliant, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, Angry Birds... Unlike the Playmobil film, which, which again, I've managed to avoid, but I hear he's not quite on the same level as the Lego film. Uh, what else have we got? Number seven, Blinded by the Light. And I really like this. This came out whilst we were off on the cruise. I really enjoyed it. It's um, uh, based on the memoir um, by Safras Manzor. It's directed by Gurinder Chada. And it's the story of um, a young guy who basically finds salvation in the music of Bruce Springsteen whilst living in an environment that is so completely different from the environment about which Bruce Springsteen is singing. But actually he's saying that the Springsteen songs, you know, uh, that there's something transcendent about them. There's something which, you know, they, they break boundaries. I really like this. It reminded me tonally of Sunshine on Leith. Obviously, there's there are hints of Bend It Like Beckham. I think that Suffers Manzor's m- memoir and actually the script that's been derived from it, in which he is one of the, the key writers, is actually very well done. And I love, I love the way the film... I mean, it really worked emotionally for me. I think it, I, mean, I did find myself the last half of it just laughing and crying pretty much simultaneously. I mean, I'm a total sucker for things that get you emotionally. Oh, I, like, yeah. I like the way that the, the Springsteen images were kind of projected around the world through which he was walking. I, I thought it was really charming. Sure, the trailer did nothing for me, but having heard you talk about it then, it sounds like it would be very much... Honestly, better. I loved it, and I know a lot of people who... I mean, a lot of critics were quite sniffy about it, but I know a lot of people who've seen it just said, yeah, it, but it just got me emotionally, and it really did. It was the same with Sunshine on Leith. I felt the same way about it. Oh, I 
sunshine on Luke. Oh, good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think I'm at a point where if I, I can be crying within the first five minutes. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, I love that film. Yeah. Uh, number six, Good Boys. Yeah, no, I haven't. And I heard the review of it. And on the base of uh, the review, I'm kind of glad I haven't. I will need to check it out because it looks like it will be in the charts for a bit, but I haven't seen it. If people don't know what it is, it's the Seth Rogen film. Um, yes, but with a younger age group, apparently. Which, which some people, it's just a little bit much putting that stuff in the yeah. mouths of children that young. So. As I said, haven't seen it, so can't pass judgment on it. Uh, some stuff on Facebook, uh, this one, as the voice of balance, I'll say that it's broadly entertaining, easily passing the six laugh test, although at least as many jokes fell flat as hit home. Uh, David Dunn says, a real rarity, a funny comedy with heart and characters you cared about. One of the most enjoyable films I've seen this year. Uh, but Timothy Neal says, I hated it. Uh, nothing beyond the gimmick of watching 12-year-olds deliver Seth Rogen-style humour that feels at least five years out of date. There's a much more interesting film to be had um, about these characters are only friends at this age because their parents are also friends, idea that the film flirts with, but ultimately is not that interested in. Something in, and, and I'll probably watch that, you know, because I think... Six laughs. Yeah, although I seem to, if I, I think I'm correcting Rob, uh, I'm quoting Robbie correctly when I say that he described it as a film with one joke in it. Mm. I mean, the, a joke that was repeated all the way through the film, but essentially one joke. And his review was that that's not enough for a film, which I agree with. And, and I did notice in the trailer, there was, the, 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 using almost Goonies-like imagery, or E.T.-like imagery, <clears throat> seems to be a real trope at the moment. But Goonies is a weird thing, because Goonies, the the... the the reverence with which the Goonies is now held is completely out of whack to the reverence with which it wasn't you know, held when it first came out. It was it kind of came and went. I know some people loved it first time round. It was a big film on video, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. It found it like Shawshank Redemption. It found its audience on video. Um, number five, Toy Story four. We've already talked about. But, I, but, but, but worth saying that you know. I I want I was so nervous about there being a fourth Toy Story movie, and for the first ten fifteen minutes of the film, I thought, uh, and then it found its mojo. And I do still think that what makes it interesting is that whereas all the previous Toy Story movies aren't about toys, this one is. This is the first one in which the the primary driving force is the life of the toys, as opposed to the life of the children around whom the toys are you know are, are circulating and i did i did find i think it worked it was harrow I, mean, I loved it but it was harrowing uh, I, half an hour later i was walking down the street with my son you know we, we, we'd been and we'd been to the playground then we're walking home and i was sobbing and i was trying to hide tears from my son yeah. just from sobbing thinking about that film well i remember talking with simon when uh, toy story 3 came out and it was in 3d and he said the best thing about the 3d glasses was that you could cry behind them and people didn't right, see. Yeah, and it was yeah. absolutely true yeah, yeah no i thought i thought toy story 4 worked much much better than I thought it was going to. And number four is Dora and the Lost City of Gold. So this is the last of the ones that I haven't seen. However, it got a very good review here. And my com, uh, my um, colleague Simran Hans, who writes for the paper I write for, wrote a glowing review of it, saying it was, you know, who knew it was going to be as funny as it was? Have you seen it? I haven't. Kathy Hart writes, uh, I've not laughed so much for ages in the cinema. What's not to love about farting quicksand? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sold already. <laughs> Uh, number three, you have. You, yeah. This is hot off the press. This review. Yeah. You you, you saw it, uh, but a couple of hours ago. Yes. This is Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. I kind of enjoyed it. It's all over the place. It's too long, and it's you know it, it does look like a film that's been reconfigured several times in the editing. But at the heart of it, 
You have Jason Statham, of whom I'm a huge fan. You have Dwayne The Rock, or just Dwayne Johnson, of whom you know, for whom I have a, an enormous fondness. And Vanessa Kirby, who I think is actually terrific. And all the stuff that were, I mean, basically there is a the central gag is you know they're chalk and cheese, and they bicker, and then they run around, and and I you know there's fighty, and then there's runny and jumpy, chasey, explodey, and it appears to obey no laws of physics whatsoever. There's lots of people jumping off things and then hanging on by their fingernails in a way that would only happen in a you know Wiley e. Coyote cartoon, but it doesn't matter because it's done with us. I mean, it is definitely baggy, and there is definitely a section round about the sort of hour and 45 minutes thing when you think, oh, oh, now we're going to a whole other thing over there. But um, I do think the Stath and uh, Dwayne Johnson doing their bickering thing is funny. There's lots of really kind of uh, very obvious, cheap, but I did laugh at them, verbal gags. And actually some of the the choreography is pretty well done. Idris Elba is the, um, you know, is the the, the sort of the, the the baddie behind it, who, who's kind of like Terminator Robocop. You know, he's been made better. He describes himself as Black Superman. And they look like they were having fun with it. It does definitely look like it went through 58 edits and this is the version that they ended up with. So it's definitely not something in which you'd, I mean, you know, there's a virus and then she's got the virus and then they've got to find her because they got it from somebody. It's definitely not a film that you would describe to your friends by saying it's a great story. You know, it's not, there's this figure called Gatsby and, right, right. you know, he, he was once in love with Daisy and then this other thing happened. It's not that, okay? It's not a film that you would describe in narrative terms. It's a film you'd say, the bit when they're running down the side of the wall and he jumps off the thing and then he crashes onto Ridges and then he does the thing and then that blow, it, that's how you describe it. And then there's the bit when they're on the plane having the bickering thing and they're going right. to, you know, so, so I, I thought it was fun. I, you know, I kind of, I, I enjoyed it much more than I had expected I was going to. But then again, I'm a total sucker for, um, for anything with the Stath in it. I still think the Stath best film is Hummingbird which is massively overlooked and have you seen it? No. Again, nobody has which is a shame because it's actually really good and I think he's brilliant in Spy because I think he is really genuinely very funny but I thought it was fine. We have this from Cowrie Tulineus who says uh, uh, dear Sobs and Ball I had to pull the I'm not crying I'm cleaning my glasses move in the most <laughs> unexpected of circumstances at a screening of Hobbs and Shaw. I'd never seen a Fast and Furious film but I didn't want to waste a free ticket. Uh, I mean there's, there's a, a topic isn't it? Yes. Things you went to see on because it was free. Um, so I went with low expectations. Uh, I enjoyed, but I wasn't terribly engaged by the first three quarters of the film. But once uh, Mr. Rock and Company <laughs> got smudged, <laughs> <the rest laughs> quite smudgy. Um, he, he, uh, Cowrie adds, You see, I'm about to move back to my home island, Iceland, after living abroad with my family. Uh, so the, the whole theme yes. found ready, ready access to my tear ducts. Yeah, of course. Also, it's got Eddie Marsden, who, who is really terrific. And you get. To, you get to see him in a way that you probably haven't seen him before. And I, again, I will just watch anything with him in at all. But I, do, I, I did genuinely think that the Stath was funny. And I thought the Stath Johnson sort of interplay stuff was funny, even though some of it is very... Lo- and as I said, it is catastrophically messy. Number two, The Lion King. <sighs> On a technical level, I think it's really amazing. Although I have heard some people say that they think that the, technically it isn't all that. I thought it was, but my problem with it is conceptual which is when you have photorealist lions talking and breaking into song you do wonder why because in the cartoon animation you're in a level of fantasy which allows your imagination to make that stuff work i'm not in sh- i'm not sure what the point except for the obviously obvious financial point the monetary point because obviously this has taken a huge amount of money um what the artistic point 
in making a photorealist version of The Lion King is. I mean, there's also that weird thing about because they've tried to make the mouths of the animals move in a way that, that is vaguely natural, if lions were speaking English and singing, which you think, OK, that is the most self-defeating exercise possible. You know, I'm trying to do a realistic well, version. So you say that it worked for Mr Ed. Well, yeah, Mr. Ed the talking horse. Yes, exactly. Horse but he always had his mouth down. Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't great what they were doing with Mr. Ed either. They were smearing peanut butter on his gum. Yeah, they were just doing trying, that. Yeah, yeah. Lick yeah. it off. Yeah. Wow, making a Mr. Ed the talking horse <laughs> reference. I'm sorry, they just. <laughs> anyway, so I thought on a technical level, I I did think that you know we have kind of reached a tipping point where it is possible to create an entire photorealist world. And, uh, you know, but I just thought, I don't understand why you would do that to a, to a story, which is a fantastical story, which actually worked perfectly well in the animation, other than to say it's, you know, we're, Disney is working its way through its back catalogue and, you know, doing live action. I mean, the thing about this is it isn't live action. It is an animated movie. I mean, we think about it as live action, but it's absolutely animated. Yeah. There is nothing on screen that is live action. Not like Jungle Book, in which there is a, you know, the, the character of Mowgli is live action. There is nothing on screen that exists anywhere other than in the virtual world of the film. And that's breathtaking. So we're going to press pause at number two. Okay. There is a new entry at number one. There is. Uh, I think people will be very keen to hear what you make of it. So we've got that coming up. And I will be talking to Sam and Aaron Taylor-Johnson about their new film, A Million Little Pieces. It's, uh, it's Kermode and Mayo's film review here on BBC Radio 5 Live with me, Jeff Lloyd and Mark Kermode this week. Um, what, what I'm hoping for you, Mark, yeah. is this, uh, having me here this week, just makes you appreciate your relationship with Simon. And if anything, it puts a new spark back into it. You know, you, you learn to appreciate what you've had all these years. Is he the cellist type? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, no, I'll hear no end of this. <laughs> I only met him once. We were in a kazoo orchestra together very, very briefly. OK. Yeah, uh, for, for comic relief at the Royal Albert Hall, somebody had arranged a bunch of people to go and play kazoo on stage. Yeah. And I was, I was quite excited to meet Simon. Oh, he's a nightmare. Yeah. Total nightmare. <laughs> Total nightmare. Uh, we're looking at the... Well, in a few minutes, I should mention, we're going to talk to Sam and Aaron Taylor-Johnson. I spoke to them earlier this week about the new film A Million Little Pieces. We, we are... Uh, we, we're at the top of the pops. We have a new yeah. entry at number one in this week's box office chart. Uh, people, I'm sure, will be very keen to hear what you think about it, is, of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well... Uh, Robbie reviewed this very eloquently on the show uh, last week and he made a very convincing argument for um, for why the film is brilliant and, you know, I think he's, he's uh, he was talking about it as one of the best of the year and he's very excited. I mean, it was brilliant listening to somebody that was so excited about the film and, and had got so much out of it. I didn't get that much out of it as Robbie did. I think there are things about it that are great. So the... the the first thing to say is that when they were, when I heard first that Tarantino was involved in a in inverted commas Manson movie, my heart did sink because it's one of my least favourite genres. And actually, I think one of the surprises, because of things that we can't talk about, but I think it is actually one of the least exploitative in inverted commas Manson films I've seen. And I thought that that was a, that was an impressive part of it. I think it is clearly made with a huge amount of passion for the era. 
Um, I think it's also uh, fantastically ill-disciplined, and there are there's more shoe leather in this film than I've seen in many. There's more you know shots of people walking from one place to another because it feel. And now Robbie was talking about this as saying that his interpretation of it was that they were they were living in a period when time was running out, but they didn't realise that time was running out. And I think that's a very convincingly put argument. I don't buy it for a minute, but I think it's a very good argument. Um, I don't think that that's the case. I think that it's the bagginess of the storytelling. It basically means that there are whole sections like Brad Pitt up on the roof, with his, doing the, which you just should be gone. I also think there are things like the Bruce Lee scene, which I thought was be unforgivable. I mean, just flat out unforgivable. And anyone with any discipline would have just said, that's coming out, although it's a setup for a for a gag. Um, I think the way it looks is gorgeous. Um, there's never been any question that, you know, that you can inhale the cinema of, uh, of Tarantino. I think there are certain moments in it that, uh, that were very funny and certain moments in it that were actually really weirdly surprisingly moving. Um, but I did feel once again, and I, you know, at the risk of sounding like a stuck record that for me, when what I want is precision and concision, I, and I don't, you don't get that from Tarantino. What you get is you wander into this world and you sort of inhabit it for a very long time. And then about two hours in, it stops and there's a voiceover which explains a whole bunch. You just think you've had two hours and now there's a voiceover explaining a whole bunch. It's like, where, what were you doing for the two hours? And again, I would say that my frustration with Tarantino is because there are things, because there are moments when he demonstrates how brilliant he is that I just expect more from him. Again, stock record time. I think his best film is Jackie Brown. I think it's the one film in which not everybody talks like a Tarantino character. There is a young character in this who talks exactly like a Tarantino character. And I kind of felt like, okay, that, that's, we're back in that world again. Um, so the things that, ref that, 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 that delighted and pleased me were that there are, you know, as I said, it's completely, I don't think it is exploitative at all. And I really enjoyed the things that we can't talk about. Um, and I thought that there was, you know, you can feel the, the, the love of cinema in it, but I f thought it was fantastically ill-disciplined and indulgent, and I thought there was certain just whole blocks in it that seriously somebody just would have gone, that's a DVD extra. Just take that out and put it in the DVD extra and take it down to, you know... Uh, 120 minutes. I don't think it gives too much away to say. I think it had one of the best examples of Chekhov's gun that I've seen in a long time. That's a good time. phrase. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, this comes from John Randolph Davis, who says, I'm guessing you will have received very little correspondence on <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so I thought it best to send you something. Um, the, the film is unavoidably entertaining. I sat in the cinema and got That's a good phrase. the uh, entirety of its runtime. Um, if Fellini's Eight and a Half is a director reflecting on creative block, this film is a director proving that his cup runneth over and its contents must be sloshed about. Mm -hmm. In celebration, um, he says uh, a, a late career lament. It is not. I just say that's a great phrase. And one of the things I would say is that, for example, when there's the stuff about the 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 the, the series that he's shooting, and then we actually then go into the series, and then we see a we see a whole scene. It's like you, no, I don't need that. Thank you. That's that's just you indulging yourself, going off and you, you know having a little bit of fun over there. Yeah. So the flashbacks within flashbacks, the thing within the th it's a, it's just they just, they could just be ten seconds. Yeah, literally, yeah, you yeah. don't need to. But okay, fine, you can do it and you can do it well. But yeah. 
this is from uh, Andrew O'Connell in Sirencester, who's uh, Sirencester, who says, "I've just come back from a showing of Once Upon a Time. Blimey, Charlie! I didn't think it was going to be that long. 165 minutes—that's nearly three hours. And for what? Uh, I mean, for the first 40 minutes or so, all I could think really was, oh wow, didn't they drive badly in the 1960s? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what—it's one of the few films that has ever made me think. Oh, Los Angeles would be a fun place to live. Yeah, there is... uh, but but you know, I did feel." You know this this the, the argument that Robbie made, and Robbie makes a similar argument, but under the Silver Lake. I he, I heard Robbie talking about you know they said it's a world that you live in, and it's a and the point is they don't realise that time is running out, and I think he made it really convincingly. And as I said, I don't buy it for a second. But what's great is that for some people it has had that response, and the positive thing is, it's great that people are having those kind of reactions to it rather than just oof. All right. Well, I'm sure. This will rumble on in the coming weeks as Simon returns. I'm sure this isn't the last yeah. we've heard of your. But thoughts just, just on tell this. me the Bruce Lee thing, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah ab- just, absolutely, just yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, it, yeah. it felt like it yeah. belonged in a much worse film. A much worse film. Yeah. All right, uh, so uh, yeah, do, do uh, email mayo at bbc.co.uk, and as I say, Mark and Simon, I'm sure we'll be rattling on with that uh, about that at length in coming weeks. Now. Let's talk about a million little pieces. The other day I spoke to Aaron and Sam Taylor-Johnson about this. It's out next week, 30th of August. They wrote the film together. It was adapted from James Fry's best-selling book about his struggles with addiction as a young man. Um, Sam Taylor-Johnson directed it. Aaron Taylor-Johnson plays the lead. Um, uh, Who's James, the, the author. And you will hear my conversation with them following this clip, which features Aaron as James and Juliette Lewis as Joanne. Look, truth is, I don't need to be here. I'm not like these other people. I had an accident, okay, and everyone's making a big deal out of nothing. Is it really nothing? It's been a bad time recently. You know, I'll admit that. I just need some time to figure it out. That's exactly what this time is. No, this this is about AA. Stop. If you really want to know what I think. I don't. I know that this program works, and it seems to me you might not have given it a try. Because there's no point. You know why? Because it's based around God, and I don't believe in God. God, higher power, a power greater than yourself. Either way, however you want to put it, higher power, but what you actually mean is God. Right? That was a clip from A Million Little Pieces, and I'm delighted to be joined by its star and writer, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, and its director and co-writer, Sam Taylor-Johnson. Hello, both. Hi. 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 Thanks for having us. Can, can we just start... Can we? You're finishing each other's yeah. sentences. Oh, no, we can't do that. Can we just start by maybe just telling us a little bit about the film and how you came to it? Well, I read the book when it first came out back, I think, in 2005, and the impact it had on me then didn't really diminish over the years, and I always kind of tracked what was happening with it in terms of film because when I read it I thought god this is going to be an amazing film because James writes in such a visual way and it's a powerful story and it's a powerful story about a man's journey and struggle with addiction and it also has you know as much light to it as there is darkness and so when the rights then came up a couple of years ago I you know as a filmmaker by now I jumped on them and said you know put my hand up and I got hold of James and I emailed him and he called me straight back and I said, I'd love to make the movie of your book. And he went, OK. And I was literally as simple as that. And the whole journey with him has been as simple as that. 
I'm quite curious to know, do you remember, did you say, would you consider letting me play James? Or did you say, how would you feel about playing James? <laughs> well, really after Nowhere Boy, we really wanted to find what was the next project for us. That was ten, 10 years ago. That was it was released at this point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and like Sam said, you know, this was one that she always wanted to do. It stayed by the bedside table. She would track every filmmaker that was being offered it. You know, it went through a lot of hands and, and kept, she kept on raising her saying, I'll do it, I'll do it. And it got to the point where the rights were reverted. So we sort of nabbed them and then that was it. It was like right now, now it's in our creative control to do what Sam yeah. set out to do. So that was the beauty in it. So you asked him. Yeah. Yeah. This is different to the way you usually approach work because I'm right in thinking that you do one-on-one off, you alternate work projects. Yeah, we've yeah. done that for the last eight, nine years. Yeah, it's been Ooh. that beautiful balance of being able to support one another and, and, and also we move with the family so that there's always a parent with the kids and that's how we've wanted to be and it's been really beautiful. So when this one came around to do it at the same time, I asked my parents to come over and look after the kids whilst we went off to work. So. Yeah, and we shot it in 20 days, which was kind of wild and crazy and adrenaline field and also really helpful in order to not leave the kids too long with something like this I mean obviously you, you shoot it in 20 days which is a ridiculously short amount of time but mm. the amount of preparation and thought that goes into it beforehand you co-wrote mm. it how did you establish boundaries as in not bringing your work home with you I mean where was the line I don't think there is one it's impossible because I, I think you know it's all just interspersed together and, and especially when we were shooting because the 20 days being such a tight schedule meant that we would come home or we were staying in like a local hotel to where we were filming and we'd get back to the hotel then we'd have to have meetings you know into the night with a cinematographer to plan the next day because we're also producers and writers and we'd have to shot list and then meet with the actors about the following day and you know very little sleep and then back and straight back in it so there was never any separation during that time and I think you know when we were writing it over the 18 months Aaron slowly becomes the character and so a lot of James was coming into our lives and becoming a part of it so there was a constant discussion around the world in which he inhabited and the issues that we were tackling in the movie and so I don't think there's ever any sort of hard and fast rule of cutting off from the work. And what did that writing look like? Was it sitting eyeball to eyeball? Is it the case that one of you is good at plot and the other one's good at dialogue? Well, Sam knew exactly what she wanted to shoot and was very um, vocal about how she wanted to visually shoot it and how she saw certain scenes. And that was just music to anyone's ears. I think when you have the luxury of having a filmmaker attached to something and, and then I just felt like I had to get it down on paper quick. So there really wasn't time to go out to a, a writer, and which we wanted to right at the beginning. And a few of our, the great writers that we went to were interested but tied up for about another year and we didn't have that time. So it felt like we better just get it down quickly before we forget it you know and it turned into a big long 18 months in fact I would have loved longer but structurally yeah it was really interesting but Aaron has that patience he can sit like eight ten hours and write and write and write I don't have that patience I kind of pace around and you know I'll come in with some ideas here and there and then Aaron would then you know place them in the correct sort of form and structure which I don't have that kind of brain so it was a perfect synergy in the sense that you know he could really focus and I could sort of pour out mad ideas. And and given that you've never done it before where does that come from in you? Have you read books? Have you talked to writers? Is it just something through reading a lot of scripts? 
Well, I think through being a part of and reading a lot of scripts, yeah, that you definitely get a rhythm for it. I mean, there's that aspect. So you you generally have a natural instinct to when you read a good script and when you read a bad script. In fact, you don't get past page 20 when you read a bad script. And that is fundamentally because it's not been structured properly. But then we had have a really dear friend, actually, Andy Kevin Walker, who kind of mentored uh, us through the process. And, you know, it became like... Uh, a real sort of study into that world and uh, and broke it down. So that was real special and a unique experience. To and would have. you would you go to him for notes? Yeah, um, you know there are times when and we have other friends that are writers and, and other filmmakers. In fact, it wasn't necessarily needing that. You at some point you get a couple of drafts in and then you yeah, you feel board. like you need someone to bounce off and you go does this does this work does this feel right or we're, have we lost you know the journey for this character or what have you and there are little fundamental sort of techniques and things to do for that so that was that was kind of fun I really liked that and I've heard you in interviews talk about when you read this book years ago even then before you were a filmmaker yeah. you could see it filmically in your yeah. head and there are some lovely visual moments in the film have any of the things that you saw back then when you first read it made it into the film it's hard to remember <laughs> what I was thinking when I read it in terms of ideas back then. But I think because James writes in a way where you're so inside his head and there's so many sort of visual elements. And he said to me, create art. He said he wrote it in the spirit of art, go create art. And the creative freedom that gave me to then, you know, scenes where he talks about, for example, walking into the rehab facility and the walls closing in and the anxiety. And so that really sort of had my mind ticking about how can we get across that? visually you know he's written it so beautifully but visually and so you know we created this corridor that he walks through and you know the walls start sort of bleeding excrement you know it's and it starts flooding and he starts sort of dancing in it because it becomes comfortable it's like oh I I know you know I understand being in the dirt and the rough and and I'm comfortable in this place and then that's how he sort of enters rehab through the sort of anxiety and then and then creating a sort of headspace of comfort and familiarity through something else. How common is it when you're adapting an existing book for the author to turn around and say you're an artist go away and make art? In Rare. my experience not common. And it was music to my ears. I mean, James, you know, he said to me, you know, I really don't need to be involved or I can be. I'll read things or I won't. It's really however much you need me or don't need me. And so it was great because he'd be at the end of the phone and, and you know, Aaron could call him up and ask him things. You know, you could have a sense of that he was always available and he would tell us stories or, and or talk about different things that he went through yeah and then you know you could tap into anything and uh, we spent 18 months writing it and in that time we went on a, we went to the treatment center and we went on a road trip and I spent time with his brother and his friends and uh, who used to go and visit him quite often in the facility so there was a lot to tap into even though a lot of some of those things didn't even make it in but you got a, a feel of authenticity there why was it important to visit that treatment center that he because it's a huge character of the book I mean it's like you need to soak in the environment you need to understand it's not as clinical as you might first thought and then it, and also the geography of it you know he goes from the first couple of weeks in a, a medical unit and then he goes on to the actual unit and this but you know I needed to understand the geography of that in order to have a, an understanding of writing it you know 
When the book came out, there was this controversy a short while afterwards, Mm. which seems very much of its time. I think now we just accept that memoir writing. Of course, you remember anything to some extent. It's fiction. But at the time, it was this huge sort of brouhaha. Mm. Was that a factor at all? The thing you did, I thought, was really classy. You used a Mark Twain quote Mm, just at the beginning of the film. How long had you had that quote (laughs) knocking about? The quote at the beginning is, I've lived through some terrible things in my life, some of which have happened. (laughs) But the the controversy was the controversy and we did have discussions about how should we address it and should we have the Oprah interview at the end or should we have any transcripts at the beginning and we decided that actually it was the book that completely captured my imagination and the controversy was there people were aware of it it can be read about googled all of those things but for me it was really what the book meant to me when I read it and how visually I could tell that story and you know the sort of guiding divining rod or the guiding star whatever was really James and the fact that he had been on this journey and we met with his counsellors and we'd spent time with people who supported him through that and that 26 years later he's still sober and you know he's been through everything you know through the book as well as public shaming a hell of a lot but still you know remains very dignified and still sober. I want to talk about some of the supporting cast. Juliette Lewis is in there as a counsellor. And Billy Bob Thornton just lights up the screen every <laughs> so time he, he comes on as yeah. uh, one of the uh, fellow people in recovery. As you were writing it, did you have a wish list and was Billy Bob Thornton at the top of it or was it a eureka moment at some later stage? I think a bit of both. It was hard. He was actually a really hard piece to... to when we were writing it, we started visualised the actors that we wanted to play and, and we sort of started to post them up on the wall so we could kind of look at their face. And but, you know, it was kind of interesting to do like that. And luckily, uh, pretty much everybody who was up on the board, we got in the movie. And Billy Bob, it was a hard, hard character to cast, but when we sort of finally... Yeah, it was that a eureka moment. And then it was like, Billy Bob, but do we feel like... is he Would he be interested in doing it? You know, is that that moment where you kind of get... Really really nervous and anxious that you're like he's the exact last ingredient if we can get is that, it difficult to ask well it's just nerve-wracking because we wrote the script so you know <laughs> yeah. you're, you're kind of going uh, what do you think of this and you would you be involved and you know i was amazed by how everybody came back super quick and with an answer was yes and we go we don't have any money and they went this is not a problem we're in and it was like this is this is amazing. This is like our dream coming true. That everyone who we asked came back and said yes. And it, and everyone really sort of said it was this one's for the soul. We'll do the next one for the money, but this one's for the soul. And you know, Billy Bob came on set and was like, "Really, this is the first time I've had to share a trailer with two other people." <laughs> but it, what it did was you know create a really tight community to create this film. And having that level of cast of Juliette Lewis and Billy Bob Thornton, Charlie Hunt, them, you Giovanni know, Ribisi, Giovanni yeah. Ribisi, it, it just sort of made everything much tighter and possible. Really, yeah. So your last project together was 2009. Should we expect something else in 2029? <laughs> no, I'm hoping for something a bit sooner than that because I had an awareness, you know, over over the years of I want to do something and I want us to collaborate and do something together. But it was difficult. We had much younger kids then, and now they're just a little bit bigger, and it's and it feels more possible for us both to work at the same time. And what's your next thing that you're going to be doing? I don't know yet. I really don't know. And it's interesting also, you know, after every film, I always feel like I'm at ground zero straight afterwards and I have to kind of go out there and push and bang on the doors again and get on the lists. And uh, it's a nonstop battle to uh, be on the the list for good movies. So, yeah. And Aaron Christopher Nolan, Tenet? Yes, right. Uh, We heard Robert Patterson say that he had to go into a locked room and read the script and he wasn't Mm -hmm. allowed to take it out. Have you had that experience too? Yep. 
<laughs> but you're going to tell me all about it now, of course. Yeah. Yeah, right. uh, well, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, that was worth it as a gambit, wasn't it, to try Very and good. extract information <laughs> from him. It was ultimately unsuccessful, but I thought, you know... It's, it's, good it's, try. Yeah, yes, the old college try. Uh, that is A Million Little Pieces, which is out next week. It's Kermode Mayo's film review here on BBC Radio 5 Live. We, sh- we should have a film review, shouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, so let's do Inner Dio, The Soul of Jamaica. This opens next week, but it's a really packed week next week, so just briefly talk about it this week. Um, documentary by Peter Weber, who made Girl with the Pearl Earring. Um, the tagline of the film is The Human Adventure of Men and Women who embody reggae and wear Jamaica's soul as a banner. It's basically the story of um, a number of sort of uh, reggae legends, uh, Ken Booth, Kid Asai, Judy Moe, the Viceroy's getting together to record an album in a yard, meaning to record it uh, in a kind of unplugged, uh, almost like in a, in a in, you know in a yard, literally in, in a yard of house. Although actually they're, they're recording around the yard. There's one marvellous moment in which there's a group of women doing the vocals in the front room. The brass section are out on the front porch. The drum is off somewhere else in the kitchen. So it's got that kind of unplugged feel about it. And it's um, it happened in conjunction with a tour. And what, what the documentary does is it does two things. Firstly, it shows the stories of each of these, uh, you know, uh, singers and musicians who have had very, very different stories, often stories of hardship, often stories of sadness, of brushes with fame, of brushes with um, tragedy sometimes. Um, but embodying the spirit of uh, reggae in Jamaica and uh, Rastafarianism and then seeing them actually playing and recording. I mean, lovely stuff if you're a musician of actually seeing them working songs out and having, which I really love that stuff, but having a go with a vocal, no, that's not quite right. The, 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 the timing of that line isn't quite right. Do it again, which I find, you know, endlessly fascinating. Tonally, it's interesting because... Um, it, people have compared it to the Buena Vista Social Club, although actually I thought that there was also something tonally of Bender Balili, which I thought was brilliant. I thought it was a wonderful film. And the 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 nice thing about it is that you do get a sense of intimacy, um, which which it's often very hard to do when you're filming people talking about music, recording music. It's, you know, there's it's a history of the area and, you know, it, all, it wears all that stuff very lightly. But what you really want is to have that feeling of being in the room with musicians as they are reminiscing, as they are creating, as they are producing music. And the, it does do that. And it's, it is so hard. I know people think that filming music is, you know, it's one of the most complicated things to actually put you there in the room with yeah. the music being made. And I did think um, there was certain sequences in this film and I really did feel like I'm in that house, I'm in that yard, I'm in that, I'm in that environment of them, you know, just swapping riffs and and it you you actually sort of organically see the music come together. So it had a and it's a weird word to use in conjunction with it. It felt very tactile. It felt like you could you know you were you were there on the porch, which I, I thought it was anyway. It's called In the Yard, Soul of Jamaica, and it comes out next Friday. It's been a good year for music films. I mean, away from big blockbusters like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, and and Rocket Man, the Leonard Cohen documentary. Yeah, which I I have to say I thought was Nick Brumfield's best film. I know that not everybody agrees, but I thought the Marion and Leonard film was was actually uh, Brumfield's best film. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, th- that is out this week. That, that Marilyn is out, but Inner the Yard is out next week. Sure. It's uh, Mark Kermode and Jeff Lloyd on Kermode and Mayo's film review. Aside from just being in a fairly constant state of panic about ruining everybody's film show, <laughs> it is also like a deeply stranger experience for me to be listening to you do this whilst fully clothed and dry. Because if I, when I do hear, oh, you mean show, whilst you're fully? Yes. Clothed? I thought you meant me do this. That's how I imagine you in my mind. But I, I tend to. Um, you listen in the bath. I tend to. If it's Friday afternoon, because I work strange hours, you know, I don't really have much order in my life. So if it's Friday afternoon, I try and time a bath around the show, which has been strange with the time time shift yeah. recently. Uh, you know, yeah, the, t- a... the time shift will take me two years to get used to. Yeah, well, it's really affecting my bath time schedule. <laughs> so it, it is strange. So, it's fr- be... so Friday afternoon is bath time for you? It, it can be. You know, what? it's more a case of it's Friday, I've done this in the morning. Oh, hang on a minute, the film show's going to be on in a bit. I can probably start running the bath now and I'll hear the most, hear most you, of it. You know, but you should do the pod. You know, you should do the podcast. Then you can, you can have, you have a bath whenever you want. I know, and it's yet the... I don't. There's something about the the live programme that I enjoy accompanying me while I'm in a bath. I've had an awful thing recently, which is that I have succumbed to... Um, I've got... I've, I have to lose weight and I've um, uh, I've got a machine now that I'm that I'm meant to work out. Like a big out. elastic band that goes right Yeah, the big elastic... No, 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 not that. You know, a kind of thing that you pull, you pull a bit and you do the thing. And, I, and somebody said to me, you know, well, you should listen to a podcast while you're doing it because you're meant to do like half an hour of, you know, pulling things and all the rest of it. And I tried doing listening to a podcast. It's not going to work. That's actually not going to work. What I need when I'm doing that stuff is Dexy's Midnight Runner's first album with Kevin Rollins. Because that's the, literally the only thing that can see me through 30 minutes of, you know, I, was, you know, I wasn't built for exercise. Can you not just wear some kind of, some kind of corset or something? <laughs> well, like Spanx. William Shatner, yeah, yeah. allegedly. <laughs> oh, I mean, if, if only I had time, Mark, to tell you about my spat with William Shatner. Blocked me on Twitter. There was you were blocked whole, by William Shatner. Furore. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean it's 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 too long a story to go into here. But the the headline is one Saturday evening a couple of years ago. I was thinking to myself, William Shatner's been very quiet on Twitter. I mean, you know, I know he's getting on a bit. I hope he's okay. So I went to look at his Twitter account yeah. Saturday evening, and it said, "You are blocked from reading William Shatner's." tweets why well this is what i thought so I, I screen grabbed it and did a tweet saying i don't know what i've done to upset you know the man who plays denny crane in boston legal captain kirk tj hooker and and then somebody tweeted him saying why have you blocked jeff he's he's, he's all right i can yeah. vouch for him and um and he tweeted straight back immediately. He said, if he wants to know why I've blocked him, he should check out his own tweet from March the 12th, 2015. Wow. Yeah. And? And then, I mean, it, it turned into this whole thing. But I tried to uh, uh, get him humorously involved in a crowdfunding thing for a friend of mine who was writing a book, and he didn't see the funny side of it. And it turned into this whole thing, which unfolded over the course of about 48 hours. A various, very well-known and far more successful people interceding on my behalf, only to... <laughs> Enraged Shatner further and further to the extent that he was blocking people for mentioning my name. Wow! Yeah, wow! Yeah. It was. It was. Did you know that Malcolm something. McDowell still receives hate mail from people because he killed Captain Kirk? Is that <laughs> it's not real. It didn't actually happen. Um, anyway, like I say, it's a much longer story, but we can come on to it at another time, perhaps. <laughs> um, right? Should we should we talk films then? Uh, yes. What have you seen this week? So, Angel has fallen, which is the third part of the. Has Fallen series. Um, you will remember, if you cast your mind back, Olympus Has Fallen, which was a really dumb movie, which actually 
suffered in comparison to White House Down, which was which was of the two movies that you were going to see with that plot. White House Down was the funnier one. Then uh, London Has Fallen, in which Gerard got to do his kind of cut-rate Bruce Willis impression in the streets of Merry London, which was a just deeply terrible film. Now, Angel Has Fallen, in which his uh, Mike Banning finds himself set up in an attempt on the president's life that is set up to make it look like he was involved. Here is a, I think, a fairly descriptive clip. So you get the idea. Okay. Yeah. Now, his thing, did you see London Has Fallen? I didn't. Right, London Has Fallen was terrible. It was really, really awful. I mean, it was a, just a deep, I mean, a, offensive, but also just deeply awful. I don't think this reflects well on me, but if, if on the poster for a film there's there's something on fire, I'm probably not going to watch it. Oh, okay, no, there's plenty of things with, you know, with something on fire which are fun, but this wasn't yeah. one of them. And I remember there's a line in it which, you know, after London, after London Falls, there's a line when somebody says... <clears throat> London has been hit by an attack which has decimated most of the known landmarks of the British capital, for which I think it was Peter Bradshaw wrote, well, at least the unknown landmarks are safe. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think I said at the time, you know, it was like, it's like Team America World Police, but without the jokes and with more wooden acting. So I went into this thinking, you know, although I had recently seen the Gerard Butler in the the Lighthouse movie, which had been called Keepers, and I think ended up being called Vanishing, which he's really good. It's actually the, the best thing I've seen him in. He's really terrific. So I went into this thinking here we go again and you know what this is the best of the has fallen has series now i understand that saying that is like saying it's the best time i hit myself on the thumb with a hammer <laughs> but actually in a weird way this unlike the first two this is actually fun it has a sense of its own absurdity but without the kind of the nasty edge of its predecessors i mean there's a lot of dialogue in the london has fallen one about you know oh yeah make those fruitcakers pay and let's send them back to fruitcake head is starting which is stuff which is really kind of you know lowest common denominator grotty this actually i thought was directed by rick run war script by uh robert mark came and matt cook and i thought it had much more of an entertaining b-movie sensibility than i had expected now i'm not going to say it's a good movie but it actually gerard does his stuff pretty well in it and there is um a moment in the film about halfway through when you think okay you know this could go either way danny houston has an awful lot of scenery chewing fun as the guy who's got the private security firm who you know there's a scene in which he says yeah at some point we must get together and throw a few steaks on the barbie in that way with you think well that's never gonna yeah, happen yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a million reasons why that isn't going to happen and then um when uh gerard is on the run and this isn't a possible because it's in the trailer isn't it he has to meet up with his father, played by Nick Nolte. 
and Nick Nolte, who actually hasn't pronounced an understandable word in about <laughs> 10 years, is living off the grid because he is in Vietnam and then he thinks the government is incredibly corrupt. Anyway, Jared, so Jared turns up and then Nick Nolte is right. I can't trust anybody. Come with me, son. I'm sorry that I left you, but I had a bad time with the <laughs> Vietnam. And then the and it turns out that what Nick Nolte's great, uh, great uh, scale is, is that he likes to blow things up a lot. And I started laughing because the father-son stuff actually is funny because the combination of Gerard and they're clearly having fun and they clearly know exactly what's it. And it's actually done quite well. And I've, I have a real soft spot for Nick Nolte. And actually I have a soft spot for Gerard Butler when he's, when he's being fun Gerard Butler or good Gerard, or as I said in, the, in the, the Lighthouse movie, in which he's actually, I think, doing a really convincing job. And I thought, okay, it's fine. It's found its B movie mojo. It's got it's got that kind of the exploitation beat right, and and it is funnier than I expected it to be, and it's more sort of skippy than it, than the previous ones have been. I mean, it's I'm it's, I'm not going to make any claim for it being a good movie, but what I and I see that it's not getting any better reviews than any of the others, but I had more fun in it than I thought, and I actually thought, you know what. This this is this is efficient B movie trash that I'm enjoying watching, and he's got the measure of it. And Nick Nolte's got. And the first time you see Nick Nolte, he literally looks like the Scarecrow out of you know the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> or like you know Tom Waits in Ironweed. Do you remember that scene <laughs> yeah, in Ironweed when, when somebody you know, they're looking at a pile of trash on the floor, and then it turns out to be a character who gets up. <laughs> this is and Nolte's doing that, and I. Yeah, I enjoyed myself, and I really hadn't expected to. I feel privileged to, uh, to get to sit in a room with your Nick Nolte in person. Oh, thank you very much. It's exactly the same as Tom Waits. Honestly, he's got... Because the weird thing that Nolte does is... Because whereas Tom Waits is all like that, you know, the whole... Uh, Nick Nolte's got this weird thing when he goes, Yeah, hi, Ben. It's, it's, it's... Anyway, it's the best of the Has Fallen series. Uh, scary stories to tell in the dark, then. Yeah, so this is... Um, it's well. I think the best way of describing it is it is it is it is a horror inflected film rather than an outright horror film, which with elements of the portmanteau anthology directed by uh, Andre Overdahl, who did uh, Troll Hunter, adapted from the books I love by Troll Hunter. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's great fun, isn't yeah. it? Uh, adapted by the books by Alvin Schwartz. So the script is by Dan and Kevin Hagerman, although there is a high-profile story credit for Guillermo del Toro, who is the producer and is obviously the name that, that kind of jumps off because he made Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water. And for him, you know, stories of monsters have always been very important, very personal. He told me this story that he's told other people as well, that when he was a child, he was terrified of monsters under his bed. And um, and the only way that he got through his childhood was to befriend them. He did, he made an agreement that he would befriend the monsters, and the monsters then became his kind of companions. And he's often you know written stories and directed stories about you know monsters seen from different perspectives. Anyway, so the the plot is uh, Halloween night, sixty uh, eight, <clears throat> Mill Valley, Pennsylvania. Three uh, young kids, Stella, Augie, and Chuck, are getting their revenge on a local bully. They're then chased by said bully into the drive-in, where the, which is showing Night of the Living Dead. So it's 69 in that case. It's 69, yeah. And uh, that's where they meet uh, Ramon. Oh, no, maybe it's 68. No, Night of the Living Dead is 68, isn't it? It's 68, yeah. And uh, they meet Ramon, and then all of them decide, look, let's go off to the local scary house. There is a scary house nearby, you know, like in the Stephen King. There's a scary house where there is a story in the background of the scary house of hidden secrets. 
The Bellows had a secret, a daughter, that they never allowed to leave the house. The myth is that there was something really off about her. A really scary part is that her family erased her from every single portrait. To this day, nobody's ever found a picture of Sarah. They disowned her. Ah! Better run! <laughs> so what happened to her? Kids would come from all over in hopes to get a peek at strange Sarah. And though they never saw her, they could hear her through the wall. Sarah told them stories. Scary stories. And of course, there is a book of the scary stories, which they discover only to find out that the book is still being written or writing itself. And that uh, the stories then start to play out in real life. That is involving... a creepy, creepy idea off the bat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, which I, I like that. It's a, you know, it, it, I like the idea of storytelling and that thing. Between, and although, you know, obviously that's, that is something which we have seen several times before in the horror genre, but it's, it, it's well done here now. Here's the strange thing. So the original um, the source material, which I think was a three-volume collection, was designed for younger readers. And in America, <clears throat> the film is rated PG-13. When it was first announced it was being done, there was some question about, well, is it going to be acceptable for you know, younger audiences, the same audiences that would have enjoyed um, the books, perhaps? And there was a, an interview with Del Toro who said, we are anticipating PG-13, which they got for terror, violence, disturbing images, thematic elements, language, including racial epithets and brief sexual references. But Del Toro said, I wanted to have standees that said, you have to be this tall to see the movie, but somebody beat us to it. But the idea is that a books are a favourite among young readers. And I think that there are two or three generations of parents that know the books too. So it's really going to be a ride, but there is a safety bar in it which is an interesting phrase. There is going to be a ride, but there's a safety bar. And of course, over here, it's 15 for scenes of sustained horror. And I mean, you know, it reminded me of things like the controversy around the classification of um, The Woman in Black, which I think ended up being a 12 after they softened certain elements. They didn't cut it. They, they took down certain sounds and they just made certain changes just to, to take the intensity. I, mean, I know a lot of people that saw Woman in Black thought it was much too scary for a 12. That's interesting. So just <clears throat> changing the level of tension... So, yeah. I often get the impression with these certification that it's, it's almost box ticking. No, it isn't. It's, it is much more complicated than that, oh. particularly when it comes to the BBFC. I mean, the, you know, it is it is a tonal thing. And I mean, remember The Vanishing, the first Vanishing of Sportlouche, the George Schleiser film, was a 12 when it came out. It was one of the first 12s. And I think in America, uh, Poltergeist was a PG. That was at the beginning of the whole PG-13 thing. Anyway, so what you have, basically, is a film which I think has a problem in as much as it's not, it's too scary for younger audiences and classified too much for younger audiences. But I don't think that it's going to satisfy the teenage audience who basically have got so used to what a 15 certificate movie kind of looks like nowadays that this isn't it. So it's too old for the younger viewers and it's too young for the older viewers. And it's going, I, I suspect it's going to fall between two stools, which is a shame because it's actually rather well done. I mean, it's obviously made with real care and attention. It's obviously made by people that love the genre and people who are interested in the, that central idea of storytelling. It's also obviously made by people who are aiming, you know, to, to, to get that kind of crossover market. But I think the problem is that we now live in a world in which a 15 certificate horror movie is, a, you know, can be quite a full... It's quite hard to get an 18 certificate for a horror movie now. Most of the things that we think of as fright fest movies are 15 certificate in the, you know, in the current, well, when I was a kid, they were all X, you know, anything that was even vaguely scary was an X certificate movie. 
But so I think the problem is it's going to struggle to find an audience here because it's. I suspect it's going to fall between two stools. But as I said, the the interesting thing is it. You know, it's it's slightly baggy and it could do with a little bit of reining in. But the characters are really well done. You like the kids. You like the stories. I like like you said that that idea about the stories being you know writing themselves and being you're part of the fiction is a nice gag and it's it's well made. I mean, Andre Arvidsson is a good is a good filmmaker. I just don't think it'll find the audience because I think it will it will end up in that is it isn't it is it you know is it a kids movie is it a teen movie and I think that is a problem. All right, on to a, a genre that I feel is uh, underexploited: Swedish sci-fi. Yeah, this is another film which comes out next week. Um, again, it's, it's, a, it's a real logjam next week, so I wanted to talk about this this week. It's called Aniara. It's a Swedish Danish co-production, co-directed by and forgive my terrible pronunciations. Pella Kargerman and Hugo, I, it's spelt Lilja, but I imagine that's probably Lia. And it's adapted from a poem of the same name by Harry Martinson from the 1950s, which I haven't read. It's a, you know, a, a sort of long epic poem. And the title apparently is derived from a Greek word which means either sad or despairing. So it's set in a dystopian future like there's any other kind of dystopian future. And apparently the original was written as a kind of response to... Hiroshima and Cold War. Now it's set in a Soviet future. We start off with images of disaster, of catastrophe, um, which is, you know, obviously kind of very tied into current, you know, worries about climate change and what's happening to the world and, you know, the way the w- earth is being despoiled. And of course, actually, that always reminds me of things like Silent Running. Back in the 1970s, people were making science fiction films about the fact that we've ruined the earth and everyone's now got to go, you know, got to go out into space with the, with the, uh, with the forest. So we begin with uh, this montage of catastrophes and then we see um, a, uh, a, a vessel being lifted up to a spaceship. And somebody says, say goodbye to Earth because you'll regret it if you don't. They are embarking upon a journey which is going to take them to uh, to a new home, to a new uh, planet. Um, and it will take weeks, if not months. But the thing itself is like a huge shopping mall and, you know, life on Mars. We're going to, you know, repopulate. This, we're going away from Earth to somewhere else. And there, there is on board this thing a thing called a MEMA, which is a machine that, for me, invoked visions of Event Horizon and also of Sunshine. It's a machine, but it's almost a living entity that reads people's minds and it says that it creates a vision of the world as it once was. It gets into your mind and it gets your own. So it's basically like you escape into an idyllic vision of the world as it was. Again, there's a big Silent Running reference there because in Silent Running, he runs through the forests and he remembers being back on Earth. So at the beginning, we have a character played by Emily Johnson, who is a Mima robe. She teaches people how to use the Mima. And then something happens. There is an accident which causes the spaceship to have to jettison its fuel. And they're off course. And they, they can't alter the course because they don't have any fuel. And the captain says, OK, we're going to have to wait until we get to another solar body so we can use its gravity to redirect us. And it might take two years. And even then, when he says it might take two years, you have the sense that it might take a lot longer than two years. So then what you have is this microcosm of society adrift, heading off into the vastness of space, and suddenly everybody needs to find something to occupy themselves. So everybody suddenly wants to use the meme. And this becomes... So this thing is still working. The thing is still working. Yeah, the, yeah. the ship is still working. It just yeah. can't change its direction. It is just headed inexorably in the wrong direction until they find some way of correcting the course. And as I said, he said two, it might take two years, and you know that it's going to take more than two years. 
And the rest of the film is then about what happens to the society, how it starts to fragment, how it starts to develop religious cults, the, the Mima, which has to take on all the hopes and dreams and aspirations suddenly of this incredibly uh, disparate and increasingly despairing group of people, it starts to have an impact on the meme itself, which cannot carry the burden of this human pain and this human anguish. And the thing is divided into chapters, and I, it's not a plot spoiler to say that one of the chapters is called Year Three, the Yerg. And so, you, you know, you know, when he said two years, it's never going to be that. And I, th I knew nothing about this when I went to see it. I thought it was really remarkable. Firstly, as I said, it did remind me to some extent of Silent Running, but also you think of things like Solaris because it's that outer space, inner space. Yes, it's about space travel, but it's really about the internal journey. It's also about, there's that line from Rocky Horror Show, the last song in Rocky Horror Show, which is lost in time and lost in space and meaning. And that echoed through my mind as I was watching this because it's when you're unhinged and flying through space just off towards nothing suddenly everything becomes weird you know there's there's where are you going to there is is there any god is there any purpose in life is there any next generation what and it's, so it becomes a thing about existential despair it also has that you know, absolutely that that solaris thing about a machine which reflects back or a planet a living thing which reflects back your own fears your own and I started to get panicky about the, you know, about the being in... I mean, I do find that thing about the, the vastness of lost in space forever, which I think why well, the, the final image of Silent Running is so uh, so haunting. It reminded me to some extent of Claire Denis' film High Life, which, of course, draws very heavily on Solaris. It was... I just... I thought it was a, a really brilliantly done depiction of that society starting to fall apart and what it means to be lost in time and lost in space and meaning. And I knew nothing about it when I went in, and I was really, really affected by it. Right, I haven't heard anything about that, yeah, well, but I'm, I'm sold on it. That's called Aniara, and it's out uh, not this next week, week. next week. Uh, shall we do TV movie of the week? We shall. Is it a vintage week, do you feel? It's a week. <laughs> right, OK. <laughs> it's not not a week. Uh, where, where do we start? Do we start with the bad ones or do we start with the good ones? Start with the good ones. Okay. And uh, usually there are, there'll be listener suggestions. Oh, I have many. Yeah. OK. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so, so the how are you enjoying this show? I'm enjoying it. I'm worried that I've started to grate on you. No, 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 not in the slightest. Oh, yeah, okay. I think what's brilliant is that, you, that, 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 that you know you're demonstrating how easy it is and how what Mayo does is completely you know anybody could do. I, th I think quite the opposite. <laughs> I think people are thinking. I always thought it was easy what Mayo did, but then you put somebody else in there and you really you know the shortcomings are very obvious. So well, we're uh, getting on very well, aren't we? I, th I think so. Yeah, think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's not do this publicly. Anyway, so moving yes. on. The neediness <laughs> no, yeah. is bleeding from yeah, both of right. us. You here. do like me, don't yeah, you? Yeah. Was it Sally Field, wasn't it? You like me. You yeah. really like me. It's like two Sally Fields in a studio. Anyway, carry on. There's too many. Um, the Western of them. Yes. No, you don't go through all of the. Well, you just there's a whole big list, and then you just basically read out which ones. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'll read out the ones for the listeners then. Yes, exactly. Hey, okay, here we go then. I'm, I'm learning, learning on the job. This is from Neil Peter on Twitter. Twitter. Um, he says, "Monsters Dark Incontinence." Okay, that's TV movie of the week. So bad, it's bad. Yep. Uh, he says it's it's one of the worst sequels to a terrific film ever. It is. It is. It is an. It is an unfortunately depressing sequel, which is a shame because Monsters was so great. 
Right. I, don't, I like the joke, though. When yes. Just can't, oh, you, to, yeah. you know, I appreciate that. Um, uh, so so uh, I've got so bad it's bad. I'm also getting the... Uh, there we are. The good ones. I Thank you. I had the wrong piece of paper. I can't be trusted. Uh, here we go. OK, um, so this comes from Eureka, who says, What a fantastic lineup this week. I absolutely love Sing Street. Yep. So a friend of mine recommended Sing Street to me to the extent that he bought it off iTunes and yeah. sent me uh, an email saying, You're going to love this film. And... It wasn't for me. Oh. Yeah. It, it, it was one of those films that I can see why he thought he would love it, but just something about it felt slightly slightly too OK, well, I'm going I'm, I'm to break yeah. any sense of tension by telling you that Sing Street is my choice for TV Movie of the Week because I loved it. Mm. And I loved it, and that doesn't mean we can't be friends. No, but as I said before, I am so unsure of my own opinion. That you'll now change I'm straight away okay. thinking, oh, he's probably right, I'm probably wrong. So here we go, I'll tell you why I love it so much. Um, having been in bands when I was, uh, a, a, you know, a kid, which is still in bands now, um, the depiction of bedroom rehearsals of bands right. is so well done. It is so on the money. I mean, the way in which... They have songs that rip off things like Hall and Oates songs. The way in which you can see them putting together riffs, and I, 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 I struggle to think of a more precisely correct version of what it's like to be in a teenage band. What was your teenage band called? Oh, there was we started with the Spark Plugs. That was that was that was me and Dave Bedeal, Strangely enough, seriously, yeah, seriously, he was a very good guitarist. Um, uh, yes, the Spark Plugs, and then there was many others. There was the Basics and. By the time we got to college, we had Russians eat Bambi, and but no, but the Spark Plugs was the begin. The Spark Plugs was the band I was in that they would have been in at the point that they were doing Sing Street. I loved Sing Street. See, I so just I, loved I, it. I, I was in a band at um, thirteen that has a film reference. I mean, it was just named after a film. The Sure Thing was our band. Oh, me, very good. Me and Eddie from Next Door, oh, the yeah. Rob Reiner film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What the, I thought you were going to say you were called the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so that is my choice for film of the week. Okay. Uh, but, you know, some, some fantastic suggestions. Boy was the one Eureka said. Boy's you know, great. Yeah. Boy is great. Um, Marilyn says, Sense and Sensibility is my favourite movie to watch with my mum, so it gets my vote. Despite strong competition, we both get emotional at the end every time. It's a beautiful Oscar-winning ad- adaptation with a great cast. Also, it's where Emma Thompson and her husband, Greg Wise, met. So romantic in real life, too. Yes, and and the Oscar victory as well. So and, you know, it's, ve- it's very, very fine. In fact... In any other week, it would be the film of the week, but I just love Sing Street and it wasn't seen by enough people. How often do you spot... You know that, that kind of chemistry when you when stars fall for each other? How often do you think you can genuinely spot well, that? Well, she was the screen? writer. She, so it was that was... She won the Oscar for writing, didn't she? And I can never spot chemistry on screen, literally never at all. I mean, I have, I've seen films in which I've said, oh, it's great, you know, they've got such chemistry. Somebody said, you know they hate each other. <laughs> you know, or I've said, oh, it's incredible, you know, they, they look like they're from different planets. You know they're married, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I yeah. never spot any of that stuff. Um, what else we got here? Uh, another one for Boy from Jen Alford. Taika Waititi is, is, is so good. Um, Jen says, you can do no wrong in my eyes. Great selection, tough to choose. And one more, this is from Dominic, who says, I think Ant-Man is possibly the most underrated Marvel film. It rarely gets a mention between the Thors and Iron Mans of this world, but I thought it's tremendous fun and very family-friendly. It suffers from a forgettable villain, but most Marvel origin movies carry that cross with them, which think of that as a hypothesis. I think that the problem with Ant-Man is that it's not an Edgar Wright film. 
And, you know, it's, it, it, it was a project that was absolutely Edgar Wright's project. And at the last minute, it became something else. They wanted to change it. He, he, he left to go and do Baby Driver as it happened. So I think from his point of view, it was exactly the right thing to happen because it then opened the door to do Baby Driver, which I think is brilliant. But it should have been, it should always have been an Edgar Wright project because it was his, it was his baby. Then he made Baby Driver, so... Do you want a couple of so bad it's bad? Yeah, I'm just I'm just checking myself. I am right. The Emma Thompson yes, she won for best uh, screenplay based on material she previously did, yeah. released. Yes, no. Uh, this is from Connie on Twitter, who says Glenn Close being baked into a cake in 102 Dalmatians still makes me laugh. 19 <laughs> years later. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, whatever works. And this is good. This is from Simon. He says they filmed Revolution in King's Lynn. Donald, listen to this. Donald Sutherland stayed in my house and signed my parents' guest book. Al Pacino stayed with friends of ours along the Norfolk coast. Terrible film, though. Yeah, I mean, Revolution is my TV movie of the week. So bad, it's bad. It's it's just one of those things in which it, there was that whole period, the Goldcrest thing, and and Revolution was always the problematic title. And then I went to see it thinking it can't it can't be as problematic as everyone says. You go, oh. Blimey, Charlie, it is. Isn't it right that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're a Beatles fan, right? You're, yes. So that Her Majesty wasn't meant to be on the last track on... No, the, on Abbey Road. So you've got that long medley of songs. Which yes, makes which, which, is, which is the most perfect sequence. Amazing. Evs. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, especially given that the reason it exists is they were at a point in the career where they'd just got unfinished scraps of songs rather than, you know, finished songs. And, and Paul thought... What if we just glued them all together? And it, you know, it's better than the sum of its parts. It's, it's astonishing because side two begins with "Here Comes the Sun," right? Yeah, and then and then you get into that once there was a way to, go. and then it's that whole. Yeah. Just beautiful art. And then it stops, and then there's Her Majesty. Yeah, so what happened is it was supposed to be in the middle of that medley, I think sort of after uh, me, Mr Mustard or Polythene Pam, but it wasn't working. So they chopped it out, but this is back when you're using reel-to-reel yeah. tape. So they just stuck it at the end of the tape, thinking we'll, we'll figure we'll, out we'll what come to do back with it to later. It, yeah. And then when they played the finished mix, there was this 30-second gap, and on comes Her Majesty. And they thought, oh, let's, let's leave it like that, because that was something they were big believers in, was happy accident. Happy accident, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the, that's the story of that one very excited about the abbey road reissue yeah well you know i i'm i'm learning more about the beatles every year because i was never a huge beatles fan uh, but i you know i am i am learning that's that's the way to do it you know i, I think there are, there are beatles fans and there are people who haven't yet learned very good those are the two types of people uh right let's um let's talk about pain and glory so almodovar's latest um which is a kind of semi-autobiographical maybe quasi-autobiographical tale of a filmmaker in stasis played by antonio banderas who won best actor at Cannes. he's racked with pain both physical and mental he's had a back operation uh we meet him first in the swimming pool clearly sort of you know having to stretch his back out he's he made a film three decades ago and he hasn't spoken to the lead actor since the day the film opened when they fell out with each other they had a famously fractious relationship now there is a revival and i wrote this down at the time there's a festival putting on a and it's an inverted company it's they've gone back and they revived it with a negative restoration you mean you restore the negative although actually in the in the english translation that phrase negative restoration seemed to mean something and uh the festival wants uh the director and the actor to reunite to introduce the film so this director, who's basically stopped making films, then has to meet up with somebody who he hasn't spoken to for a long time. And Alberto then discovers that the director has some writing that he's done. He's written a piece called Addiction, which he says, I want to do this. I want to do this as a monologue. And Salvador says, well, it's, no, it's a confessional piece. I don't 
uh, well, okay, you can take it as a monologue, but you must take my name off it because I don't want to be identified because it's confessional. So the film then basically goes forward and backward simultaneously. We see Salvador looking back to his childhood. We, we first meet him in a swimming pool and his thoughts float back to his mother, initially played by Penelope Cruz, washing clothes in a river and he remembers her and her friends singing whilst they wash clothes. He remembers the cinema, um, seeing films projected on a whitewashed wall and he particularly remembers images of water and there's a big thing about water, memory, cinema being tied together and also something, strangely enough, although they're such different filmmakers, there's a lot of Terence Davis uh, crossover in this, you know, the kind of, the way in which that childhood is remembered through the company of women who define the world for you, the the presence of cinema as a transform you know, that kind of everything's seen through this glorious kind of memorial haze. And then as that story plays out, the present day story sort of crawls forward in terms of him having to deal with his own addictions to medication, him perhaps finding a way to come out of the cocoon, the depressive cocoon in which he has found himself, him remembering his later relationships with his mother. So the thing kind of flows, like an ebb and flow all the way through, you know, like a tide. As I said, water is a very big part of this. I I, I thought this was a, a really, really lovely film for, for, for two reasons. I mean, firstly... You know, stories about filmmakers in crisis, you know, that is a staple of cinema, you know, whether it's Eight and a Half or whether it's, you know, Stardust Memories or whatever it is. It's And that self-reflexivity can be very, very productive. It can also be very just kind of auto-reflexive. But actually, I thought in this case, it was very productive. I've never... Banderas is so vulnerable. He's, I've never seen him be this vulnerable before. I'm sure he has been in other films, but this really struck me that he has this face which is a kind of mask of melancholic regret and yet his eyes are doing that thing of darting questioningly backwards and forwards wherever he is. So he's got that strange mix of, on the one hand, deadpan, resigned, morose. On the other hand, fearful, and yet there's something else going on in the background. It felt intensely personal. And there's the famous story that, that when they were reading lines, Almodovar was having to read the lines that were written for his mother and was bursting into tears because it was such a personal... It's not autobiographical. I mean, they have... He's played with the, with the history very much. But the other thing I think was really impressive about it was that although the character, the central character, lives amidst great darkness, the film has those blocks of colour that that is, you know, kind of... Amadova's trademark. So in a way, it emphasises the greyness of the existence in which he is now and contrasts that with the vibrancy of his memories of, you know, being a young boy, cinema, his mother, their friends, living in a cave. They end up living in something which is almost literally a cave with whitewashed walls. And so the film, although it's dealing with some, you know, depression and with stasis and malignancy and guilt and all those things, is colourful and vibrant and bright in the way that you want from Almodovar. And I think if you're an Almodovar fan, you 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 kind of know because in a way, all Almodovar's fa- films are kind of all about my mother. They're all a sort of riff on that. 
But if you're coming to this for the first time, and there will still be, obviously, there'll be people listening who haven't seen Almodovar's, this is a really good way in because it's a very generous film in terms of it welcomes you into the story and it, you know, and it paints this really vivid palette. I thought it was terrific. It's called Pain and Glory. I thought it was great. We have this email from Nina Gray who says, I saw Pain and Glory at a preview screening last Sunday. Almodovar is my favourite director. Oh, okay. This, in my view, is his first perfect film for some years. Oh, wow. Uh, his films are already in my top 100. In order of release, uh, they are What Have I Done to Deserve This, Matador, All About My Mother, Talk to Her, Volva, and The Skin That I Live In. My top 100 now needs tweaking to allow this to rightfully sit alongside its equals. Yeah, but no Pepe Lucci bomb, so, you know. Do you feel that, that you need a cooling off period before you allow anything into your list of favourites? Yeah. I think you need yeah. six, six months yeah. at least just, yeah. To, yeah. just to reassess. I mean, you yeah. know. My list of my, my top ten films, I think, only has one film from the 21st century. I think that's the case, but I think that's partly because of the cooling off period. Uh, there's a couple of other things to do, which I want to do before the end of the day. So, yep. can I do so? Crawl, which is, it says in the poster, you know, does for alligators what Jaws did for sharks in the same way that, you know, Ghost and Darkness was, set, was sold as Jaws with claws and Piranha was, well, Jaws with Piranhas, wasn't it? Um, so, you know, we've had films like Alligator, the Lewis Tig, which was written by John Sayles, of course, and then and Lake Placid and Eaten Alive, the Toby Hooper. So uh, Casey Caldario is Casey Caldario is University of Florida swimmer. There's a Category 5 hurricane in which her father is... is he lives in the area that's struck by the hurricane. He's not answering his phone. So she skips over a police line to go into the evacuated zone to go to his house to find out if he's all right. She gets there and finds that the waters have risen, the house has been, you know, flooded, and he's in the basement. Why is he in the basement? Because there's a bunch of alligators around. <laughs> Notice that I I um I spoonerized that and I said Scolidario, so Scodelario. Caius Godelario. I'm, t- my, anyway, fine. I'm still the best of us. Yeah, and, and the worst of us. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Anyway, so so uh, essentially, this is directed by uh, Alexandra Ayer, who's made a number of films, but you know, my favourite was always Switchblade Romance, Hope Tension. He also did the remake of Hills Have Eyes. And, um, and it's written by Michael and Sean Rasmus and produced by Sam Raimi through his Ghost House Pictures um, label. And it cost something like 13 million and it's taken something like 65. So expect to see Crawl 2 this time. It's personal. And the reason it's, I think it's done that is because it is a very solid nuts and bolts, you know, predator on the loose movie. And the leads are likeable. I mean, I have to say, I was watching it, I was thinking about there was a film called Bait, not the Mark Jenkins film Bait, which is coming out next week, which is genius. But a film called Bait, which came out in 2012, in which a tsunami puts a bunch of sharks in a supermarket and it's such so sharks in a, and if that, which was actually a kind of really good fun film and I enjoyed it it didn't get particularly well reviewed but I really liked it and I was remembering that while I was while I was watching Is that quite Sharknado-ish? No, Sharknados are just rubbish right, I mean okay. the most recent one is there's um, there's Shark Exorcist isn't there for which the tagline the, the, the tagline's the only thing for which the tagline is we're going to need a bigger cross 
That's, <laughs> that's literally, that's the only thing you need to know. But in the case of this, it is absolutely nuts and bolts, solidly put together, you know, they're in the basement, there's a bunch of water, there's a bunch of alligators, they're, you know, they've got to pull together to get away from the alligators, the alligators are going to try and eat them. And, you know, we said the thing about, you know, Jaws is not about shark. This is about alligators. Right, That's right, absolutely, right. it's like, what would you do if you're in a basement? There's a whole sort of subplot about the fact that she's a swimmer and her father tried to get her to swim, but it doesn't matter, it's about alligators. And actually, it's perfectly good popcorn, disposable entertainment. Never particularly scary, but quite tense although the thing it does remind you is that nothing is in the same league as Jaws because nothing has that beauty of Jaws nothing has the you know that being out on the orca in Jaws is one of the greatest cinema experiences with those characters you know nothing is comes even close to that yeah but it's fun uh, also out uh, this week is a documentary called Hail Satan with a question mark so it should be Hail Satan you know it's the Ron Burgundy Hail Satan and um, it's a documentary which you could almost see as a mockumentary about the Satanic Temple, which is a non-theistic group in America who use the idea of Satanism as a force of protest and opposition, but without believing in Satan. So um, they, the group is co-founded by Lucian Graves, not his real name, to, quote, spread a message of goodwill and benevolence and open-mindedness and free expression. It started out almost as a prank, and then it ended up becoming a kind of lobby group about... Okay, if you're going to have a separation of church and state, then why is it that there are certain things that are in the uh, that it's protected in law that are to do with Christianity? And if fine, if you're going to have a monument of the Ten Commandments outside a government building, then we would like to have a monument of a of a winged demon. And so at the very beginning of this, we see them trolling uh, Rick Scott, who has been involved in a bill to uh, uh, for to, to, for for school officials, the use of prayer in schools by school officials, which they, as the Satanic Temple, embrace. Hey, how's it going? It's going fantastic. Why are you here today? We're here to spread a message of goodwill and benevolence and uh, open-mindedness and free expression. What is your name? That's not important. It's a beautiful day here at the state capitol. Great day to be a Satanist. Great day to be a human being. <clears throat> we honor Governor Rick Scott. Hail Satan, Rick, for providing us this opportunity to make the satanic cause clear and make our presence known. And uh, I believe it and I'm very excited about it. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was an entertaining documentary. There are certain questions that it raises, but that idea about, you know, the satanic church, they don't believe in Satan. They're not Satanists, but it's just, you know, it's a, it's a way of, of acting as a kind of... So there are questions that the documentary raises, but it is good fun. Hail Satan. Hail <laughs> Satan. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mark, your film of the week then? Pain and Glory. OK, well, uh, I, th I think this, is, this has been fine. I think, yes, uh, I think, it's all been great. You know, <laughs> Simon will be On back On behalf of the week. band, I hope we yeah, passed the audition. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Simon will be back next week. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for, for tolerating me. Um, um, Simon, back fresh off the cruise next week uh, with special guest Timothy Spall. Was he cruising too? <laughs> he was, yeah, he yeah. was cruising.
So that was the show. It wasn't, though, was it? No, no, but, you know, you have to keep up the artifice of these things. I know, but this, OK, this is the strangest thing. This is now to do with the new time slot, that mm. we now do the after-show bit before the show. So, and since you and I have actually known each other now for precisely 35 minutes, we have no idea how the last two hours went. No, it could have gone dramatically <laughs> no, exactly. Like, but in two hours' time, we may not be speaking to each other. <laughs> then we but come... you might be sitting here thinking, why have they paired me with this idiot? Which is, that's what about... my internal monologue is saying. Yeah, or you sitting yeah. there thinking, yeah, he's every bit as terrible and difficult as everybody always says. <laughs> Do you ever do that thing? Do you ever... Oh, this is probably just me because this is probably just paranoia. But do you ever do that thing about thinking, what is it that people think of you when the minute that you walk out the room? Yes, of course. Yeah, fine, okay, good. That's that's one of my favourite things in in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when there's a moment in which um, uh, Ford Prefect explains to Arthur Dent that thing that when in, in moments of crisis... A, any being emits a little noise that is amplified by the distance that it is from its home. And the noise is basically a noise about the distance that you are from the place you were born. And he says, obviously, because on Earth, nobody can ever be that far from where they were born. The noise is too small to ever recognise. But they make it anyway. And um, and he starts explaining about how, uh, you know, how all these things are interlocking. And Arthur Dent said, this is, this is, this is, this is brilliant. Because this explains everything. Full proof. said, "Well, he said, well, I always had this sense that you know, I was, I was, I was there." And he goes, oh no, no, that's just paranoia. Yeah, yeah, that's everyone, just low-level paranoia that everybody that. has. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you're supposed to. Like, I, I hear, I, I would always hear people saying, "As you get older, you'll be less and less worried about what people think of you." No, never, never goes away. As far as I'm, I'm concerned. It's a weird one, though, isn't it? It's that, it's, it's the, it's the thing about. Yeah, like, so when we just met, you know, the thing, and the first thing you look at, you know, the, 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 you know, do they have they? How, are we going to get on? Is it all right? And then at the end of the show, he's going to go off and go back to his partner and go, oh god, I just did the show. That guy was so difficult. He was so. I honestly, I'd heard stories about him, but my <laughs> word, he was difficult. Somebody once did say to me, and they said, "I'd heard you were difficult." Right. And so that, and my, yeah. my feeling was, don't tell me. No. Just. Say it when I'm gone. Yes, you know, yes say it behind exactly. my Nobody back. Nobody wants to know what other people are saying about them behind my back. <laughs> my wife is a stand-up and she has a bit in her show where she's like, you got something to say about me? Say it behind my back. <laughs> and if, yeah, if I find out you've been talking about me behind my back, I'll probably still be nice to your face because I don't like confrontation. <laughs> Does she- does she do anything about you in the routine? Uh, it, less so in this show. So she's in Edinburgh at the moment, Her uh, doing a show called Enemies Closer. Her debut hour is called For Worse, and it was kind of an hour of somebody standing there ranting about how terrible her marriage is and how life didn't quite work out the way she wanted it to. And did she do a whole thing about saying it's OK, it's just an act, or was it actually...? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> She never verbalised that. I think, it, I think it was supposed to be implicit, but she's never come out and said. I mean, that that is a way. That is a passive, aggressive way of getting your grievances out, isn't it? If you can't say it yeah. in over the kitchen table, why not say it? But then there's always the get out of jail free, which is not about you. It's not about not everything's about not about you. Of it's a, you know, it's an act, and you think, but it is about me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think things are about me that are written by people I don't know. <laughs> it's, that's, you know, again, it's just that, that kind of classic. I think, you know, what are you talking about? Have you, have you ever seen Fisher King? Yes, but not not not, okay. not for years and years and years. My, again, one of my favourite moments in Fisher King is the moment when they've got to get Amanda Plummer 
out to meet um, uh, to meet the Robin Williams character, and they go into the room where she's working, and she's got you know she's and they say, "Yo, congratulations! You know, you've won a prize. You're going to come in the thing." And she says, "What prize?" He says, "Well, you were chosen. You know, but who by who by you were well, you chosen by 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 how who 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 was how many people were in the room? Who were they?" And the whole thing is, who's been talking about? <laughs> Not that you've won a prize, and it's all fabulous. Who? You know? There's always a way to tarnish these things <laughs> if you're neurotic <laughs> enough, because that's another thing I have. Like, so you say that you ever see Fisher King? I am that person who. Like, I consider myself to have reasonably good taste, but I am that person who can sit and watch film and be three quarters of the way in and think, oh, yeah, I saw this before yeah. and not have realised at that yeah. point. But your ability to retain stuff... It's terrible. It's, it, well, it, seem, it seems deeply impressive to me. Well, it's, it's a... It's a fr- I mean, I, I, there was once a case in which there was a film coming up um, that it was. There wasn't. I couldn't make the week of release press screening, and I went to some difficulty to get the, the distributors to put on a special screening for me. And I was halfway through it before I realised that I'd already seen it, <laughs> and I couldn't walk out because I because they put the screening on specially. But it was like halfway through, I think I know what's going to happen. Oh, I know what's going to happen because I've actually seen. This. Oh god, that's so reassuring to hear that even you have that. Yeah, yeah, it happens all the time. And the other thing is, I do that thing that somebody says. You know, have you seen uh, you've seen War and Peace? And I go, I don't, I don't, because I'm, I can't actually remember whether I. Have. Your brain is saying, I'm, I'm yeah, remind me, have. remind me. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, should we move on to DVD of the week? Well, again, if we absolutely must. <laughs> Uh, I was reminded of my uh, my favourite of the three colours films today when perusing the list for DVD of the week, and it is Red, of course. So, we've got Summer Holiday with its big red bus of fun uh, in fabric. <laughs> so that, that's, that's a way to summarise that film, yeah, isn't it? Was that, on the, was that the tagline? Yeah, Unistubs but... on a big red bus of fun. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, in fabric with its haunted red dress, Gangsters Number 1 with its lakes of crimson criminal claret. Uh, mid-90s with its ouch that had to hurt moment under Silver Lake in which Andrew Garfield as Sam wears a red t-shirt throughout Greta in which and the uh, the classic poster for Apocalypse Now um Actually, I'll be honest, Blue is my favourite of those films, but that wouldn't have quite uh, been on, on theme, so uh, you know, I substituted it for Red. But let's hear what you think uh, should be the one or two to keep from this coming Monday's home entertainment releases. This comes from Ben L. Connor, who says, I find my mind returning to Under the Silver Lake frequently. It's just so absorbing. The combination of off-kilter performances, vivid photography, a gorgeous Bernard Herrmann-esque score, and uh, Generation X pop culture touchstones is Truly unique. Can I just say, well done for doing Bernard Herman. I, I, I refuse to do that. I, I just Bernard. I, well, I was unsure, so I know, I, I'll, I'll I know, go with I, the pretentious option. I know, but it's a Bernard Herman. He's like, yeah, Bernard. I mean, I know it's, but you know, but it's like, sorry. Yeah, Bernard. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, Under the Silver Lake, a favourite of yours? I hate Under the Silver Lake. I think it's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Okay, um, Ed says, Flight of the Navigator. Now, this is one of those that... I've, sort of, just the mention of it brings up fondness from being a child. Yeah. But I can very remember very little about it. He says, uh, so I can replace the VHS I've recorded off telly when I was a kid. That no longer worked. Yeah, I, I, it, was wide, it was widely circulated on VHS, you know, with the cover with him in the chair doing the sort of thing. Yeah, it was, it, it was an old... I don't think I have it on Blu-ray or DVD. I'm interested to know how many people who keep stuff on VHS. Like when was the last time that VHS was anywhere near a machine? Well, I've got about 400 video cassettes, and I don't have a video player. It's completely pointless. 
completely pointless. So, so if I was to say to you, Mark, I'm going to hire you a skip, why wouldn't you throw those things in the skip? Because I'm a terrible hoarder and, you know, and I can't throw them away because it's the original copy of Texas Chainsaw or it's the original copy of Exorcist. It's, you know, I can't throw them away, but I can't play them. I, I always think as well, like, if you remember how difficult it was anyway with a VHS machine to get something to play in reasonable quality after you've played it a few times. Yeah. The idea that it could be sat somewhere in less than ideal circumstances oh, yeah. for decades yeah. and then you would expect to put it back in the machine again <laughs> no. and be able to see anything apart from well, tracking lines. It was always the thing that if you, were, if you rented a science fiction film or a horror film whenever you got to the special effects moments the picture would go fudgy because yes. everyone had paused and rewound and paused and rewound and the, ta- the tape stretched. So it was literally, you'd know that there was a bit coming out, like if you ever rented The Omen on mm-hmm. tape, the bit when David Warner loses his head, it, suddenly the picture would go all squidgy and squashy and the sound would go... And I remember the first time I ever got a DVD, it was like, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You can go backwards and forwards and it doesn't mess the tape up. I remember it almost like playing that tracking dial as if it was an instrument during the film. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Uh, what else we got? This comes from Mark Hoogland, who says, I'm reluctant to go for the obvious uh, apocalypse now, since I hated the plantation sequence in the Redux and have read that it's still there, albeit in a truncated, a, a truncated version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, to me, this broke up the hypnotic, slow descent into hell of the characters and made me favour the original cut by uh, a non-political landslide. Uh, so to be safe, I'm going for mid-90s, a superbly acted little film with a charming DIY sensibility that feels more 90s than the 90s itself. Yeah, so I'm going to go. I'm going to go for a double bill here. Mid 90s, which I did really love. I thought it was great. It didn't get much attention and didn't get widely seen in cinemas. But I thought it was it was really terrific. And I, I think I said at the time, it was the the kind of film that Larry Clark would have made had he actually had any idea what children are actually like, rather than this sort of ridiculous idea in you know the head that made kids. And then the other one is In Fabric because I just I'm a huge Peter Strickland fan and. Every time I think about In Fabric, it just puts a smile on my face. It was described, I think at the time it came out, as an episode of Are You Being Served as directed by Dario Argento, and I think that still holds up. And I was talking um, I was talking to somebody about... Do you know this thing about these videos about um, uh, uh, Meridian uh, Meridian sensory response videos? These kind of... You ever didn't know about this? Is this... The, the, sort of, you, it's whisper, whispering. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. A- AMSR. Is it AMSR? That's right. Auto Meridian Sensory Response, exactly. And Peter Strickland was talking about having been very inspired by that when he was making the film and he was putting the soundtrack together. And when I was writing the review of it, I, I didn't know anything about that at all. And I, I mentioned it because on the news this morning, they were saying, oh, and now there's a whole thing about AMSR. It's, like it's, it's, it's emerged, it's bubbled up. It's, it's now so popular, they're talking about it on the Today programme. But it is... And you do, you do, you get that tingle. I just in got your a little spot. tingle as you were doing it then. But it's weird, isn't it? And yes. it's actually, it's, it's I'm, you know, and Peter Strickland said he would just get lost down the rabbit hole of all these, uh, you know, auto meridian sensory response videos. But it's bizarre because unless you've actually experienced it, you can't explain it. But it's like a kind of a tingling in your scalp. I'll tell you what then... it reminds me of. Do you know those uh, Indian head massages that you used to be able to buy from a fella in the street along with... They, they, it's a handle on the top and then it's like it's made out of wire like coat hanger wire. Oh, right. And you just put it on your head and, and give yourself a little head massage. It, it, it feels like that only without... Except, except without yeah. something physically touching. Yeah. Just... 
And I can't do it because, you know, and there are, and it's weird when you look at them on YouTube, there are some who go, this one's really good. Yeah. You know, this one will give you a real sense, auto-sensory meridian response. It is very strange. And very bizarre. Lots, lots of, because uh, it's not just whispering as well. No, no, there's yeah. lots of other strange noises and, you know, so some of it, I think, is, is it the, the sound of felt being brushed and, you know, and... and yeah, it's really, really odd. But I loved In Fabric, and I love the fact that that's the kind of thing that Peter Strickland was thinking about when he was making <laughs> In Fabric. Well, um, I, I think I'll only be saying good things about you. I'll definitely only be saying good things about you. Yeah, I mean, but obviously we're saying said, this with, now because yeah. because we, you know, like literally we're going to go out and go. Oh God, he was so difficult. So difficult. It was such a lightweight. Oh, honestly, yeah, yeah. I had to just I had to just keep the show buoyed up all the way through. <laughs> No, this was fun, he said, assuming that it will be. Yeah. But, but the great thing is that uh, people who've listened to the podcast are in on something that we have no way of knowing. That's right. I know. They already know whether we fell out majorly, yeah, whether there was some horrible... Yeah. 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 I've, I've just had uh, I've just had a voice in my ear, not a, not an AMSR voice, but I've just had a voice in my ear say you you wanted to mention the it. Oh yeah, no, that was yeah. So that's that. Sophie who's editing. That's definitely not an auto meridian sensory no. response. That's a, that's a, that's a commanding tone, which yes. says, "Oi, you had me." So it part two is coming out in uh, cinemas very soon, and it is back in cinemas very briefly. And I just wanted to mention that, it's, you know, if, if anyone wants to get up to speed... Did you see it? Yes, I did, yeah. Did you love it? I, I, I did, but, I mean, uh, it, it, my, I have a sort of contract with my wife that I'll only watch films like that every, every now and again. I like watching... Well, films like what? Things that are sort of going to disturb me in some way or be mildly terrifying. Okay, it's, what you mean? You watch them together, or you'll you'll only watch them? So we tend to watch films together, yeah. and, and uh, in in uh, in a flipping of um, stereotypical gender roles, I want to go and watch things that'll make me cry and think about my feelings. Yeah, and she wants to go and be scared. Oh, okay. So did did, did so? It was it her that wanted to see it? Exactly. Yes. Fine. Yeah. And what was her feeling about it? She loved it. Yeah, yeah. it's good. Yeah, I think yeah. it is. I think it's really well done, and I think Annie Muschietti did a brilliant job. And particularly, did you ever see the TV miniseries? No, I didn't. Okay, so the TV. TV miniseries, which had the really terrifying spectre of Tim Curry as Pennywise, and uh, there was all that, always that anxiety about how are they going to do. That? And actually, I think the the way in which they've you know they've they've broken the book into two parts and separated, and so now that's why I'm really looking forward to part two. And I think they did a really good job of reinventing that character. Also, I think it reminded me of things like the Goonies, which it definitely had that to it. It does, doesn't yeah, it? It's, you know, it's made me terrified of drains. Yeah, but that's a perfectly sensible fear. I mean, trains are <laughs> trains are really scary. That, but that, that, but it, the the really weird thing is, if you look at the scene in the TV miniseries with Tim Curry doing that, and then you look at the the version in the new thing, I mean, they are. It's interesting the way in which they they are doing the same lines and the same moves, but they're doing them in very very different ways. Right. You know. It was and one of the great social hi, media Georgie. I just, I just, I love all that. It was one of the great social media campaigns when they 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 had the photo and they did what what would it take for Pennywise to get you down there? It became this huge oh. meme. Uh, See, I'm useless with memes. Are you not a meme guy? No, I mean I no no not at all. I mean I I'm no. You seem active on social media. Yeah, but in a very old-fashioned kind of analog sort of way, <laughs> which is that I write. And then I, that's, that's a very old fashioned way of doing it, you know. Um, but that's it. I don't understand. I, I don't understand how, how I see GIFs. GIFs? I believe it's GIFs. GIF, 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 like GIF. GIF Lemon, yeah. 
Oh, is it fun? OK, well, and then I think I have no idea how to... Cop- I think the inventor of the, the GIF is quite aggrieved that we're all calling it GIFs and he spoke out recently and said, you've got to start calling it GIF. Is his name Jif? Well, I, is he, is he, that's he, how you say Jeff in New Zealand. That's right, that's what I was thinking. He's a, he's a New Zealand called Jif. Is he six? <laughs> Okay, so so yep. if if you saw a jif yep. on uh, Twitter, yes, would you know how to copy and thing it or whatever? No, I think I'm not quite as analog would as you, you, but I'm not. I'm not as sort of uh, as good at these things as a millennial would be. I'm still astonished that you can put a picture on Twitter. That's you know that was a that was a real revelation. It must be nice being you. <laughs> Well, it's all right. <laughs> Just, Although, as I said, as I said, there was genuine wonder in your voice then. Well, as I said to somebody the other day, I said honestly, if you think my voice is annoying, try living with it. BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts. The Premier League is back, and so is Five Lives Football Daily podcast. We've got the latest news, analysis and big name guests as we usher in a brand new season and special episodes from inside some of the Premier League's biggest clubs. You ain't done a tap since he's been there. You're 18 years old and you're being paid 100k a week. Football Daily. Listen now on BBC Sounds.